I think I'm ready. Let's go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski, and with me today, I kind of say this a lot, but maybe it's because I do have the pleasure of getting to talk to my favorite people to talk movies with, but I, I honestly feel that way <laughs> this time as well. First, it's a joy to welcome back to the show the current guest co-host of this here show, film commentator, writer, and supporting characters host, Bill Ackerman. Hi. Hey, thanks for having me back. Oh, I, I, I would have you back every day if I could. I mean, that'd be a lot of podcasting, but, you know. Yes. <laughs> and for her second appearance after last year's wonderful Redux episode on Jane Campion, she's truly one of the best film critics and writers working today. And now, a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, welcome back the one and only Mariah Gates. It's it's so good to be here talking about another of my all-time favorite filmmakers. Yes, I I I had a a, a feeling that was going to happen when we uh, did our last uh, episode together. I know um, there's a couple more in the future that we can certainly. I mean, there's probably plenty more, including <laughs> silent film directors, because that is actually a, a blind spot for me. I mean, I I've oh, certainly fantastic. seen my fair share. But that's something I want to talk with you about. So many interesting filmmakers from that era. Yes. So many. I have no doubt about that. Um, yeah, well, we have a lot to say about the director of this episode today, uh, Joan Micklin-Silver. But before we launch into our thoughts on the main topic at hand, I just wanted to catch up with our guests really quickly and learn about what they're up to. Mariah, we'll start with you. Um, how have you been enjoying your time living in Chicago now and being a part of our wacky little film critic family? Uh, I'm sure I'll be seeing you at the uh, Chicago Critics Film Festival, of course, coming up. Oh, I will be there. Yes. Um, I have re really enjoyed it. I um, Part of the reason I was not uh, wary about moving from L.A. to Chicago was because, one, I knew the film culture in general with the music box and the film center and all the other stuff, just in terms of what is being screened in Chicago, was, you know, maybe not quote-unquote comparable to Los Angeles, but definitely thriving. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a sort of reminding me a lot of the, the movie theater ecosystem of San Francisco. Um, let you know, less talent, but the rep cinema here is amazing, right? Um, but I also knew, thanks to um, you know, actually, a really big thank you to the film spotting guys who had me on as trivia, and a lot of the people who do as a trivia guest host, and a lot of people who do film spotting because film spotting is Chicago are. Chicago-based critics, so I had met a lot of people like Michael Phillips and and stuff like that virtually, 
yeah, um, for sure. I moved here and, and they were so, you know, and he's one of the top guys and he was so nice. And it was like, well, if he, if the top guy is nice, then everyone's going to be nice. Right. And then, um, you mentioned the Chicago film critics film festival. That was the, I think I was here for 10 days <laughs> before that happened last year. And so I got to meet everybody and, or almost everybody. And it was, so warm and so lovely and I was like these people rule so it it really was a really not a scary move for that and then just seamless um warm like embrace from the critical community here so I really really loved it we're very lucky to have you here I mean certainly at the awards dinner you you get to interact with so many different and very talented film critics. And I mean, they're just so passionate and dedicated. I mean, uh, like me, a lot of them obviously have other day jobs or uh, certainly other hobbies and things that going on, but it's clear that they make time to, uh, you know, venture out to a lot of these rep screenings. And I always run into people and just like, Oh, it's so cool that they're here. And I get to talk with them for a little bit, like in the lobby or whatever. And that's true of the like uh, recent Robert Zemeckis retrospective that they're doing, which I can't even get to see everything, <laughs> but I'm just like, yeah, we had to, uh, we had to really choose. We went to the, the Beowulf at midnight because I had always wanted, I missed it. It came out my senior year of college. And even though I'm a, hardcore Angelina Jolie fan. I've seen almost everything she's done. I missed that one in theaters because I was like working. It came out in November of 2007. Like I was knee deep in like three different senior seminars. Movies did not really happen mm-hmm. in November of that year for me. And so I missed it. And I knew, I knew I needed to see it on the big screen. So I kept waiting and I kept waiting. And then when they announced the Zemeckis, Fest, I was like, oh my God, they're going to show Beowulf. And then it was midnight and I was like, oh no, can I stay up to midnight? <laughs> like, yeah, that's how confession. I feel. I definitely had to slather myself in Tiger Balm in order to not be sore at midnight. <laughs> 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 I, I, unofficial endorsement. I love Tiger Balm. It's really great. If you get a- achy at movie screenings any time of the day, Tiger Balm is a really good way. You put it on about an hour before you're going and it really does make the like sitting through a long festival much easier. But um, so I'm, I'm now an old and that's my recommendation for other olds. But <laughs> it was an amazing screening. And, you know, the music box was the perfect setting for it. And they showed like a behind the scenes featurette kind of thing beforehand about the, the mocap process. It was it was great. Yeah, the 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 shorts block that they had yesterday was really interesting because they flew in a print of his um, short film from U- USC and um, it is something else. And I think that's how the relationship between him and Spielberg kickstarted because Spielberg saw it and was just like, whoa, <laughs> how did you make this right out of the gate? And yeah, it's just a, it's, Zemeckis is a director I'm gonna, we're going to have to revisit. As, as Bill knows, um, that was a contentious episode with my original <laughs> co-host and friend, Patrick. In fact, him and I are going to see Contact tomorrow night. And I, I already told oh, him fun. just just make sure just make sure there's Kleenex nearby. But uh, yeah, he has he has different opinions on Zemeckis for a lot of his work. But um, I don't know that could have changed because again that episode was like ten, maybe even eleven years ago. Because I think the last time I listened to it was maybe two years ago. And at the very end of that episode, Eric Childress teases the very first Chicago Critics Film Festival at the end of that Aww. episode. 
it's just nuts to think about like time uh, and just how so much has happened within the past 10 years for me personally and for the show. And I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's wild. But anyway, um, there's a lot to look forward to. The Chicago Critics Film Festival starts May 5th, the day after my birthday. <laughs> you know, especially the, the very first night. I mean, I'll just, you know, sort of spoil that one real quick is because I really like Matt Johnson. Matt Johnson is a filmmaker and he's only made two movies, uh, The Dirties and Operation Avalanche. And I had the pleasure of talking with him for Operation Avalanche and his new movie is called Blackberry. And that's our opening night film, uh, Friday, May 5th. And then the one after that, uh, I'm very curious about because there's been a little, a, a lot of buzz surrounding it. Um, I don't know if you've seen this one yet, Bill. Sanctuary with Christopher Abbott and Margaret Qualley. Have you seen that one yet? I have not seen that one. Nope. Oh, okay. Nope. I thought maybe it played like a you know one of those festivals like New York or something. Um, but it played TIFF, but I missed it at TIFF also. So okay. yeah, no, I'm, I'm here. excited to too, catch up on that one. Oh, with that cast alone, I, I love both of them. So I'm, I'm very excited for that. And then they're doing um, an anniversary screening. Uh, and I think a lot of this has to do with Roger Ebert's love of the film. Uh, 25th anniversary, right? Of um, Dark City. Alex Preuss's Dark City at midnight. Dark City. Yeah. I, I wouldn't mind. If I, can, if, if, I, yeah, if I can stay up for that, it's been years since I've seen it. I, I definitely am a fan. But wow, that's a really cool pick. But no, there's a lot to look forward to. Um, a film that played out of TIFF, I believe, called Brother, which mm-hmm, I just that keep was hearing, also TIFF. Yeah, I keep hearing amazing things about that. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's just so much to look forward to for this festival, and it, they yeah, always the do new, a great the job. The new Paul Schrader. Yes, of course, Schrader. of course. Yeah, yeah. That's, gonna, that's really good. Yeah, I have no doubt. It's, it's going to be a really good festival. And then Colin always nails it with the shorts. Last year, Absolutely. I think one of the shorts that he programmed went on to get nominated for the Oscar. Like he's some of the one, some of the shorts I've been going through the archives um, for the social media accounts, and he he would program shorts for people who would later go on to make buzzy festival films. Like he had an early Riley Stearns short, and That's then he right. brought. Um, brought one of his films. He had the short version of, gra- of greener of greener grass, and then he brought the feature version of greener grass. And there's several other filmmakers where you look back at those early festivals, and you're like, "Oh, that short! I know that name. Oh, wow, that guy directed that." You know, and it's so like if you watch the shorts that Colin programs, then in a, probably five to ten years, you'll see those names in bigger, you know, feature films. You know, guaranteed. Yeah, you're doing a great job with the uh, social media realm. Um, with I think we have uh, Laura Moss, her film Birth Rebirth. We've had two of her shorts play in the past as well. Oh, right. So. Yeah. And yeah, the, see, that it's it's all connected. And, and the fact that it's the 10th anniversary and the very first screening was an v- incredibly special and memorable one with uh, Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell. That was the very first yeah, film Yeah, Stories that played. We Tell. Yeah. Filled uh, it with an Oscar winner right away. <laughs> got to talk to her very briefly after the film, and it was a joy because she's one of my favorites. And uh, well, I know how you feel about her, Mariah, but at least you really liked her her latest film. <laughs> women talking is very good. I yeah, really like yeah. women talking. Of course, yeah. But no, there's just again, we're we're big champions of uh, what 
everybody does in Chicago, uh, not, not, you know, like we talked about the rep screenings, but certainly what the critics do because, you know, they, they put in so much time and energy and effort and hard work into programming this whole thing. And it's always great to experience movies, you know, ahead of time uh, that they picked up from other festivals. And it's a great um, yearly tradition that I look forward to. And certainly, uh, I hope everybody can come out, especially if you live in the Chicagoland area, chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com. And, you know, the tickets are good. Our tickets, I think individual tickets are on sale now as you're listening to this, and they'll be linked in the show notes. Uh, so, yeah, more on that to come. Bill, I know you're hard at work currently with quite the magnum opus for this podcast on Jean-Luc Godard. So I'm excited for that to come. And yeah, I think I have something like 20 hours worth of material. <laughs> So it's a lot, um, but yeah, it's coming along. I, I, I've um, yeah just been very busy and uh, been dealing with some family crisis, you know, uh, lately. But uh, yeah, no, uh, since since the last time I was on Directors Club, I, I yeah I did like sixteen interviews for the Godard episode. So wow, uh, Molly Molly Haskell and Danny Perry and Elric Kane and Stephanie Crawford and Patrick Rapal from Directors Club and. Um, Daniel Bird, Rachel Nisbet, Chris O'Neill, a bunch of people are going to be on it. So we cover the whole 60-year career, kind of. But I mean, no, we don't review every film or anything. It's just a series of conversations from the 60s period up through the uh, you know the last few films of his career. So it's kind of ambitious, a little too ambitious, really, in retrospect. But uh, it's um, hopefully people like it when it's done. I've been editing that. And uh, yeah, I just... Um, been working on home video supplements, uh, turned in a commentary and a video essay uh, for titles that I guess will be announced in a couple of months. I don't know when they're coming out. Um, right now, there's a new edition of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that has my commentary with Amanda Reyes from Second Sight and uh, a release of Death Dream, the Bob Clark film that I talked about on Directors Club uh, with my friend Travis Crawford for 101 Films. That's in a collection for uh, Bob Clark's films. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of been what I've been working on lately is just home video stuff and the Godard behemoth, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm excited to talk about Joe Micklin Silver. It was actually kind of a refreshing break after 60 years of Godard's films to, uh, <laughs> to watch some romantic comedy. <laughs> so. I, 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 I can imagine that's, yeah, that's quite a, a transition, but, um, wow. I, <sighs> It's like yeah, it's like a limited series on John Luc Godard. You know, it's um, it's yeah, it, it it's, will it will be. It'll be at least five or six episodes. So uh, wonderful, you know, very polarizing filmmaker, and uh, you know, a whole glut of episodes on him. But I mean, I think that you guys had three on Bergman, so this won't be too much anymore. <laughs> yeah, and and three on Spielberg but, total. Um, those were done over time. Oh yeah, of course. But um, gosh, yes. yeah, this is this is going to be really something folks i like i i know this is you know partially my baby but for, for, for bill is putting in so much hard work into this that it's just like i can't believe it's going to be on director's club <laughs> you know it's just like i'm yeah. as i'm as excited as a listener but um it, it, it it's just there's, there's just so much going on and on top of all that uh you know i'm taking most of may off i mean there's going to be as we always do a birthday bonus episode patrick and i are going to do it it's not it's not going to take a whole lot of prep it's similar to what we did for episode 200 kind of it's not commentary tracks though this time but you'll all see it's a big surprise 
as fans of this show, you'll be very pleased, especially someone Aww. like you, Bill, because it's a you know a long time fan thing. You'll 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 know what it is soon enough. But um, yeah, I'm okay. taking most of May off, and I think just basically it's going to be Jean Luc Godard and the, the birthday bonus episode, and then you're working with Patrick again. Probably recording towards yeah, we're the end of May. Simon Lang. Yeah, I'm, I'm recording Simon Lang with him, and uh, sometime around that, I'm also supposed to record with uh, Sabina Stent and Heather Drain on Alejandro Hodorowski, but I'm not ah, sure. Ah, Sabina. That's yeah. He's the best. Yeah, it should be fun. Uh, I think that's coming out in the summer, though. But yeah, yeah, we'll no, take your time. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in, in June, I'm doing Carl Franklin with uh, with with. The, the, they're like twenty years younger than me, but God, they're, they're doing they're doing a great job. Uh, Mariah, you were on the show. Um, exit through the two thousands. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Clay and Jack, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they're they're great. And Carl um, Franklin just has his second film in the Criterion Collection, so that's exciting. It was perfect timing. Like I lost my mind when I saw what was announced for July. I just lost it. I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> I have personally witnessed 10 years of people going when is after hours come to criterion because when i first started working at warner brothers for the warner archive instant which was their first streaming service i did the social media for that and we had an hd master of after hours on there and every time i posted about it all of the comments were give this to criterion what are you doing (laughs) and i'm like i i'm just the social person i can i can't do anything but people were so angry that Warner Brothers, like, quote unquote, wouldn't give it to them. But I feel like it just took 10 years to get it how they wanted it to be. You know what I mean? Because that that all the special features and everything on that, I'm sure it was painstaking mm-hmm. um, and probably a much better restoration than the quote unquote HD master that we had on the streaming service 10 years ago. But it's been funny. Every time they announce, I always look on the Instagram to see like are people still harassing Criterion for After Hours? And it always is. So I feel like <laughs> feel like they can have a load off now. <laughs> no, now they need to start harassing them about Alice doesn't leave here anymore. Oh, Alice uh, Yeah, that'll that. probably be the next. <laughs> I keep waiting for Crossing the Lancy because <laughs> they, you know, they've done um, Chilly Scenes of Winter and like I think Olive had already done a pretty decent, not that they're, not to dismiss Criterion putting out Chilly Scenes, I'm glad. But Olive had done a pretty nice version of that because um, I have it. But there has not been a nice Blu-ray of Crossing the Lancy. I'm like, when is that coming? I can't say anything on the podcast about that. Ooh, okay. <laughs> about Crossing yeah. the Lancy? Mm. 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 Interesting. No, that uh, yeah, it was interesting. Like, I mean, I. I've owned Chili Scenes of Winter twice now, and I'm going to get the Criterion when the next Criterion sale happens. Yeah, I'm going to get it as well. Because I had the um, DVD version of it with, was it Cutter's Way? Like it was a John Hurd double feature. Yeah. And then Twilight Time put it out. Yeah, Twilight Time did it. And it's it's good timing, too, because After Hours and and Chili Scenes are both the... um, triple play and double play production so it's a, it's nice that they come back to back like that the yeah. uh, Griffin Dunn A.B. Robinson yeah yeah right and, and it all ties together because yeah like you said we um, you and me Bill I, was it in 35 when we saw it in uh, New York after hours I think it was in 35 yeah um, the, the thing that the Safties were doing yeah 
that was at, at, uh, insane. Met- yeah, Metrograph. Yeah. Yeah, seeing After Hours in New York with the Safties and, and Griffin Dunn. Uh, was the producer there, too? I forgot her name. Yeah. Yeah, it was Amy Robinson. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That was wonderful. And they all kind of have a connection to the director of this episode, Joan Micklin Silver. Came of age for film at a time when the sexism was pretty strong. And although I could get work as a writer, I couldn't get work as a director at all. And I had the experience of watching young men who'd made shorts as I had, prize-winning shorts as I had, moving on to directing films, and I couldn't do it. And my husband, Ray, was uh, became angry. And he said, you know, maybe you can do it, maybe you can't, but everybody should have a chance to try for the brass ring. And he said that he would raise money if I could make a very cheap film. And he thought he could raise $300,000. He was in the real estate business, and he was syndicated real estate projects. So uh, he went to his investors and raised that money. In fact, it cost $320,000. We have to talk about her because she's remarkable. She um, sort of proved herself like this, this... um, to be like a maverick with her own distinctive voice at a time when very few women were had the chance to direct feature films. She was born to uh, Russian Jewish immigrant parents in uh, 1935 in Nebraska. And she, you know, like a lot of, a lot of directors obviously grow up to be, she, she was, you know, raised on going to the movies and double features. And she graduated from Sarah Lawrence college as a student of literature and, and music and just, you know, started slowly but surely. And I, I know you probably could talk a little bit more about this, Bill, too. Like, she, her first script, I believe, was for a film called Limbo, right? And it was completely rewritten by the studio. And that's sort yeah, of... Yeah, it was, it was rewritten by James Bridges, of all people, too. Oh, the that's guy right. The China Syndrome and Urban Cowboy, September 30th, 1955. Yeah, it's a Mark Robeson film. It's it's okay. But I think that that, um, yeah, that, that kind of made her... Uh, uh, reluctant to do further screenwriting unless she was directing it as well. Cause I think that yeah. she felt like they kind of watered down her script. Oh, exactly. And you know, if she wanted to have her vision fully realized on the on screen, she would need to control things and sort of transition into directing. And, you know, right out of the gate, she had a remarkably sort of bold vision. And uh, I, I hadn't caught up with Hester street until recently. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that, Mariah, um, you have you had it on your sight and sound list, which is yeah, I had wonderful. it on my sight and sound list. That 4K restoration that played New York Film Fest last last year, I think, um, was absolutely beautiful. I actually interviewed Marissa Silver, her daughter, about the process and working with Cone Media on that. And uh, I really thought after that restoration that more people would talk about the film. Um, but they did not, <laughs> and it, it was not on very many people's sight and sound lists. And I was, I was a little disappointed, but, um, funny note about that is, well, the first time I saw that, I saw just a, a SD version that Turner classic movies had aired. Mm. Um, and it, it was still, it's very impactful rest, restored or not restored because it's just such a, a, a striking story. But a few years later, I ran into Amy Heckerling at, TCM when I worked there and I told her about how I had done a poll on my old blog. Um, a bunch of people replied like 300 and 400 people, something like that. Um, like what's the best 
film directed by a woman ever, and Clueless is what came on top. I think mostly because Clueless is one of the easiest films for people to watch, but also Clueless is one of the greatest films of all time. So it's sort of a happy medium. But she said, when I told her that, she said, no, the greatest film directed by a woman of all time is Hester Street. And I was like, oh, snap. Oh, okay. wow. Um, <laughs> so it's an, a really impactful film for a lot of people. and But it is a movie that really a lot of people don't know about. I um, How it ended up on my, my ballot was I had... I had whittled down my list from about a hundred titles down to eight, nine, nine, down to nine. And I had four films left and I had one spot. So I put those four films on a Twitter poll, not telling people why and said, which of these films have you not seen? Hmm. Cause I wanted to see what is the least seen of the four films. And then that was the film I was going to put on the ballot so that it would have a chance of maybe piquing people's interest um, and this one won that poll by a lot. Like it was like 80% of the people who responded had not seen it. I was like, okay, this, this is not right. <laughs> this needs to be, people need to see this movie. It's, it's so important and so beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, I think the Cohen film collection is responsible for that restoration. At least I, that's how I saw it was through the Blu-ray, um, that my library yeah. has. So. Yeah, they had helped. They've done a couple of her films. They, they did. Yeah, they did um, Between the Lines as well. They do Fish in the Bathtub as well, I think. Hmm. I think so, yeah. Well, that's yeah, great. I saw Hester Street uh, with Carol Kane in attendance in New York a few oh, years amazing. ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It used to be hard to see it before. It wasn't Criterion vision used to put out the dvd yeah maybe yeah i have that yeah. old dvd before this restoration i bought yeah. the dvd and then yeah. carol king got, got an oscar nomination for her performance that's sort of what, what mm-hmm. launched her career yeah and and rightfully so and i think that i mean i i understand why louise fletcher won you know <laughs> i mean it's a, it's that's another great performance but this is more subtle and i think that um you know, for the most part, I've only known Carol Kane as, you know, comedic presence, <laughs> um, obviously because of Taxi and, uh, you know, Princess Bride or any number of things. There's certainly a lot of things that she's not oh, scrooged, of course, but I I was so taken with her performance in this um, and just the, the, the way this, in fact, like as the opening credits were happening, Mariah, I said, I, oh, that I can totally see why this is an all timer for you because it does start out like a silent film. (laughs) Those credits, that opening credits alone. Yeah. She really recreates this era in New York. So, so beautifully and brings in some of those silent film techniques so that you feel almost like you're in this, um, turn of the century time in New York without, going so far that it alienates modern viewers or that you can't see the connections between then and now. She really navigates that well, I think. I also love that she is, she fought, no, she didn't really fight it. She just did it herself. She managed to keep it mostly in Yiddish, um, which was what she was, she was trying to do and try to show really the, the, the struggle to become uh, a New Yorker at that time where it's like, do you l- give up the Yiddish like her husband does, or do you keep your traditions and find others who are like that? And I think you see that, that struggle 
um, or struggle for lack of a better word, but that tension in her, a lot of her films going oh, forward yeah. about Jewish Americans. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I couldn't help noticing that there was a lot that really connected this and Crossing Delancey as far as that. Yes. Um, like, do you further assimilate or do you honor tradition? As, and like how that's kind of couched in a romance in both films as far as like choosing between yeah, yeah the more extroverted American go-getter and more, yeah, and then, and then the more kind of low-key traditionalist. But um, yeah, did you ever get to see The Immigrant Experience, Mariah? The um, The short film that she did before this? No, that's on my blind blind spot list. Yeah, is that one a, a short narrative or a short documentary? Um, it's a short narrative. It's um, okay. it's nineteen seventy two. It's on YouTube. It's on a few places you can find online. But um, oh great, yeah, because it's I thought it was so interesting how like you know would like directors how they come into feature films like she has that one screenplay credit with Limbo, but she really comes in from uh the short film arena more than anything else with that Learning Corporation of America like the uh stuff aimed at really at children, like the fur, clo- fur coat club and um, the case of the elevator duck, like these, these kind of like 20 minute short films that are like more comedic. Um, and the immigrant experience is almost kind of like a warm up for Hester street though. It's a little bit of a different thing. Cause it's about um, Polish immigrants and how the man comes across first to America to get established and then working in this kind of, was it like a meatpacking plant? And then his, his, uh, his his family come over like later and like try to establish themselves in New York City, but um, you know just the hardships of it. Uh, and I guess during the research for that short film is when she read uh, Yekel, the uh, Abraham uh, is it Kahan that the, the the novel or the short story that uh, prompted Hester Street. That's kind of drawn from that. Um, so it's it's kind of an interesting warm up. I always thought Hester Street was such a weird outlier compared to everything else in that it like you said it has the yiddish uh a lot of yiddish language dialogue and subtitles and it's black and white like it feels a little bit closer to an art film i think than anything else that she directed as far as films but it it has so much that connects it with really like all of the major feature films that she did that were you know in color english language and so and so forth especially crossing delancey but it's a while before she gets to crossing delancey as far as you know, what she does in between. Um, I think, um, is it Bernice Bob's Her her Hair? Bernice, is also, that's actually the first yeah. one I'd seen, Bernice Bob's Her Hair, um, because we watched that, I believe, in middle school. Yeah, oh, yeah that would make sense. middle school English yeah. teacher had that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see why they're <laughs> showing that because of the, the source material. And yeah, it's that's that, that's another special one. I think, uh, no, I think, I think you're right, Bill, and too, like, there. It is definitely an outlier in terms of you know the way it's shot and presented and you know it's it's unlike anything she's done. But thematically, there's just a lot of things that you mentioned already. The connection between this and Crossing Delancey. But I just thought like, yeah, it, it covers a lot in 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 a short running time. You know, just um, you know, marriage and motherhood and Judaism and assimilation, self actualization by the end, and you know, falling out of love and what does all that mean and. I, I mean, I think so much is just even said at one point during the, the introduction of, you know, a husband and wife when she proclaims, you know, to that, oh, my God, you shaved your beard, you know, and like just the idea of somebody changing and assimilating into the American uh, lifestyle, you know, I, I think is just something that, you know, nearly every immigrant must go through and have to wrestle with, like just the, the, the ultimate change in identity and deciding to... um you know, appropriate themselves or just 
be a part of things because that's what's expected of you to some degree. Um, you know, cultural restoration, just a lot to, to process watching this movie. And yet it's also a beautiful character piece, uh, you know, a, a movie about Jewish women, past, present, and future, you know, because there's different generations through throughout. Um, Doris Roberts is the landlady. Holy cow. I was like, yeah, Damn. yeah. You don't expect that. Right. No, exactly. There's, it's, it's something special. It's like, and that's something I was prepared for given what I'd already seen from, from, from Joan Micklin Silver here, but it's like kind of an essential starting point for her. It seems like. Yeah. I was trying to think of like what connected all the films because she's only the screenwriter on a couple of them, but they, mm-hmm. and so many of them are about like kind of quirky individuals and their place within a community trying to attain a kind of stability in adulthood and that can be you know depicted as the desire to assimilate into a culture or a career that I you know I, I you know honors some kind of ideals or uh, a relationship that complements such a career um, I, I and and the family stories and the like within a community like it seems to be like the recurring idea and even you know makeshift families like between the lines isn't really like the same thing but it's there's a lot that kind of connects it to Hester Street if you if you kind of look at it closely. Yeah, I think um, Between the Lines in particular ties nicely into her filmography. In even though it is a, a, an ensemble and and the you know the family in there is the, the all weekly staff, right? But her her depictions of contemporary progressive working women who are pushing back on the way the men treat them. Yeah not something you really even see in the seventies. You, you started to see um, like more, more actresses, right. But not as many complex female characters. You, you saw a lot of girlfriends. You saw a lot of, there's this great documentary I watched a couple weeks ago called be pretty shut up. And mm. it's Delphine Seyrig inter- interviewing all these actresses from the seventies mm. about how they feel about the way um, they're treated on set in the seventies. And really almost all of them are like, well, there's always only one woman. We're always in a group with men. We're always the girlfriend, you know, and you, it's people like, um, um, I just forgot her name. Oh no. From uh, an unmarried, well, Jill Clayburgh, people like Jill Clayburgh mm-hmm. and, and Jane Fonda and Shirley MacLaine. And they're all discussing these, how they get pigeonholed in these like supportive women roles and, how depressing that is um, how few and far between these like complex female roles are um, unlike during the studio system where like Betty Davis got to play any kind of, you know, she played so many different uh, working women. And what I love about Jill Micklin Silver's women is, is they're all these complex modern women. They're all pushing back for what they, what they want out of their jobs, what they want out of their relationships. If the men are being, you know, creepy at them, especially in between the lines, like John heard <laughs> in both between the lines and, um, uh, chili scenes of winter is a, is a, he crosses some creep lines, you know, Oh yeah. but the women kind of push back the women push back. And right. I don't think you would see that necessarily in some of the other, um, films, uh, uh that are similar in this era because, I don't know. I don't know why. It's just, I don't know why the male directors, for the most part, just didn't treat the women with the same respect. But I, in my experience, they didn't. That's kind of why I don't like the '70s as much. 
not really my favorite era. Yeah, the, the, only, for, the only one, other like one, a handful of. The only other one that comes to mind. Yeah, the only other one that comes to mind is Girlfriends um, from Claudia. Yeah, Girlfriends. Yeah. And occasionally you'll have a male-directed film with a complex woman like an unmarried woman. But it's like, I don't know how, I don't know how there's like, there's one, there's there's that one. And then everything else is just like a lot of garbage in that decade. Well, in Cassavetes, but that's because Mm. he loved, you know, General and so much. (laughs) And he's like, there's no way I can shrink her. <laughs> and bless him for it. But so many of the characters, you have these strong, strong actresses. When you read interviews with with Jane Fonda or or any of these women, you're like, "Wow, you're so smart." And then you watch the movies they were forced to be in, and you're like, "What?" <laughs> it's depressing. Did you ever read? Um, um, did you ever read Maya Montagnier's Smuckler's Liberating Hollywood? No, I'm going to put that on my on my list. I I'll just give that book a shout out cuz that has a whole that has a whole bit on John McLean Silver but it also cuz it's dealing with women directors in the 70s. So it, it, you mm. might find that um up your alley oh, as yeah. far as it's uh, you know Elaine May and Claudia Wilde and Oh yeah, Elaine uh, May. Lee Grant, Joan Tewksbury. Oh yeah, uh, these are all the great all the great women of this era. Okay. It has yeah, been added Joan to Darling. my wish list. Yeah, if you if you have the Blu-ray for a new leaf, the um, the uh, the Elaine May the the the, um, the signature version or the, whatever you call the uh, the special edition from Olive, uh, she does the commentary on that. But um, but that's a pretty interesting book. Yeah, because I think because um, I you know, Molly Haskell talks about what you're talking about also in uh, from reverence to rape as mm-hmm. far as the uh, the new Hollywood and how it didn't have such interesting parts for women uh, and and the ones that do kind of break from that are kind of outliers or, you know, whether it's the rain people or Alice's live here anymore. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I think that it's because in the studio system, I mean, you probably already know this, you know, that, that it was just like, you know, people were under contract and they were writing for starlets. They were under the contract. And when the movie brat directors were able to do what they want, they wanted to do boy stories primarily. Yeah. Yeah. And part of what Shirley McLean says, and I'd seen this quote before I'd seen this documentary and now I know where it came from, but she talks about how, you know, before they could have sex in films, um, women, the, the way to be a little, a little titillating with your female characters was to have them push back against the norms and to have them be judges and things like that, because that was not necessarily sexual, but it was definitely like a little boundary pushing. And so mm-hmm. it, it interested people. They're like, oh, well, I didn't know women can do this. Um, so it was like accidentally <laughs> a little feminist um, just to push back at, at norms in a way that could be done in the code, right? Well, when the code was gone and it was suddenly you can have women be naked again, She her, her big quote is basically like, they put us back in the bedroom and we never got out again. And yeah. you're like, dang. But also, but also, you watch the seventies films in particular, and it's like I love Jill Clayburgh so much. But most of her films, you see her struggling. You can almost see her like dead behind the eyes in some of the roles she was forced to play in order to hit the the and get a, a big enough star power to, to demand films like An Unmarried Woman, where she gets to do something more complex. Yeah, are you a fan of Three Women? And yet, Joe Micklin Silver out here just making them. Three Women is one of my favorites. Yeah, I, 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 I was going to really say. I like that movie a yeah, lot. Yeah, I, I, I think about that movie a lot in terms of 
yeah, like just again the fluidity of identity and that sort of just fluctuations of the way people are with one another. And the, the, again, any movie that's like dreamlike, <laughs> I'm totally on board. Um, to me, that's like Altman doing a Lynch movie. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it's just dream logic. Don't even ask for real logic. I right. love that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and 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 speaking of Shelley Duvall, I mean, it's it's a short film, and it you know it's certainly worth seeking out. And I'm glad, Bill, that you told me to because um, I hadn't realized who else was in it. Uh, Bud Court. <laughs> I was just like, he, there's a scene between <laughs> Shelley Duvall and Bud Bud Court in a car that I just oh, it's like is this one of best Bud Court's best? roles and just you know i know it's a smaller one but still outside of you know harold and maude i was just kind of like wow he's really good in this movie too um but yeah it's yeah, it's, but, it's sweet yeah it's a brewster mcleod reunion and oh yeah, yeah. exactly yeah yeah, yeah no. and uh dennis christopher's got a part in it too since you mentioned three women <laughs> oh wow. um yeah no I, I think that's it that's one of the first ones i saw also it wasn't the first one i saw because i started with lover boy i started with the classy ones but you know the uh <laughs> you know Ber- bernice bobs her hair i guess was was that on pbs i'm trying to think how most people i think it was on pbs yeah. which is yeah. why my middle school english teacher had had it yeah they um, had it at our library which is how i saw it yes yeah, i think yeah it was like that old vhs pbs mm-hmm. release right yeah yep yeah when I when I first uh, saw, I think the next one I saw was Hester Street, followed very closely by Crossing the Lancy. They were within a year of each other, both on TCM. And um, that's when I really, I think it was after I saw Crossing the Lancy, and I was like, oh, she also did Hester Street. And then I started looking into her career, and I was like, she did Bernice Bob's her hair? What? Like, I, <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> it was amazing, because I, I loved seeing that when I was like 12, but I hadn't thought of that movie, you know, and decades <laughs> yeah i i sought that out because of joan micklin silver because i'd seen lover boy first as a kid and then uh i became a fan of the writing of of danny perry and cult movies three had a chapter on chili of winter and he writes pretty affectionately about between the lines and guide for the film fanatic and so those are the films that i kind of, kind of made me a fan and then i found hester street and then you know, kind of went from there. But Crossing Delancey was actually one I heard about when I was a kid. But I don't think I saw it until I was already a fan of, you know, her 70s films. I actually just realized before I saw Hester Street and Crossing Delancey, I actually, I'm re-remembering this now, uh, when you mentioned it, I actually saw Chilly Scenes of Winter a couple years earlier because uh, in if you were had a Netflix in like 2010, 2011, 2012, they had the richest streaming library because it was before Tubi, before any of these other sort of basement ones. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they got all of the, like, they had every Atlantic releasing film. I think they had all of, of um, Amy and Griffin Dunn's production company. Um, I forget the name of it. You meant, had mentioned it earlier. It's a uh, triple play and then it became yeah. double play. Yeah, so they had all their films. They had a couple of other of these like smaller independent 80s production, you know, distribution arms that somehow they had gotten all these rights. So I watched like dozens, if not a hundred film, random films from the 80s at that time because they were all just on Netflix. That's how I saw Chili Scenes because um, Gloria Graham is in it. And I wanted to see this like, quote unquote, obscure late era Gloria Graham performance. Um 
And again, but again, when I watched Hester Street and then Crossing the Lancy, I didn't put it all together that it was all the same director until <laughs> until Crossing the Lancy. And then I was like, wait, I've accidentally seen a bunch of her films. Yeah, it's it's funny because like I I mean I I never really did the deep dive into like her like television work until prepping for this. Like I think I'd seen you know I guess Bernice Bobster hair qualifies as television, and I seen Finnegan begin again when I was on the projection booth episode on Chili Sins of Winter, but I never went into like all the lifetime stuff until recently. And it's interesting because even that work for hire TV era, like you still find like that, uh, that drive towards exploring like strong women uh, characters and, you know, female friendship and, you know, kind of like characters existing within like a well-observed kind of milieu, but it's, I don't know, because it's television, it doesn't really get talked about. I mean, it's, but it's, it's not uninteresting work, even if it isn't maybe at the same level as Hester Street or Crossing Delancey. It's, you know, I, I wonder if more people will discover some of those later films or even, you know, Finnegan Begin Again, which I think is one of her best films. But because it's an HBO film, it's not really like, I don't know, it's it's not quite treated the same as things that were released theatrically. Yeah, well, that was only released access. on VHS, isn't it? That's the only That, that, that movie only came out of yeah. VHS. Yeah. It's hard to find. Yeah, I think access yeah. is a big issue like Finnegan Begin Again and some of those other early HBO Showtime things have never really made it to their streaming arms which is I think wild like why have all those films in your repertoire and never put it on streaming I, th- well, I don't think they're taken I mean they might have reached a wide audience in their initial airing I, I, I imagine things that were like done for a lifetime were actually reaching a larger audience than Hester Street or Crossing Delancey oh I absolutely think so yes but, but they're not really t- taken seriously as our I mean lifetime because they're you know it's the same kind of prejudice that you would have against you know quote-unquote women's pictures in the 50s it's just kind of like well you know that it has its audience so it's not serious art <laughs> you know and uh which is a shame because it's you know there's that's still part of her story too. <laughs> yeah. You know, and even something like Bernice Bob's or hair, just like the idea of a haircut is like this act of rebellion. It made me even think of what happened. Um, <laughs> it's kind of an <laughs> odd parallel, but still kind of appropriate. I, I, I'm a huge fan of um, Felicity and what happened with Carrie oh, yeah. Russell when <laughs> she cut her hair, it caused this huge stir and she like experienced a backlash and people were just like so mad and I just couldn't, un- I just never understood that reaction. It's like, who cares what she does with her hair? I mean, it's like, let her do what she wants to do. You know, it's just kind of funny, like how these things pop up over time and you just go, oh yeah, th- th- some things never change. You know, people, people still have these reactionary reactions <laughs> to. Well, what's wild is that Bernie Bob's her hair, you know, that was one of the first times when women set in that era where women were starting to do that flapper cut. Right. Yeah. And yeah. we think we think now that that's we're not as a society that judgmental, but I I actually I I actually think it's still more of a, a deal with a lot of people than like what women do with their hair in particular and and then the rest of their body in general still a, a much bigger issue in this society and it's it's fascinating that you'll have this story from the that era made into a movie from in the 70s, Felicity's the 90s, we're like decades removed from this. And we're, we still, like, every time I chop my hair, somebody in my family or from my hometown is like, oh, no, your hair's short again. Or like, I just went home oh, no. a couple weeks ago and my hair is long again, mostly out of, I have not found a hair stylist in Chicago yet. It's, it's mostly out of laziness. I usually keep it really short. And everyone's like, oh, you grew your hair out. Yay, it looks great. 
straight. And I'm like, I haven't had it cut. It looks like garbage. <laughs> like when I get it cut short, it's an actual style. This is just me being lazy, but somehow the long hair is still thought of as quote unquote feminine or traditional or whatever. And people, it freaks people out because it's a, as silly as it sounds, it really is this like symbolic rebellion, like you said. Um, and people don't like that. They don't like rebellious women. Still, I people feel. don't like change right, to some degree. Her. Yeah, it's like yeah. It, it, that's why I love I love her movies. All of her characters are really defiant women. You have a story for me this week? Have I ever missed the deadline? Constantly. You've been picking up a paycheck for years. You don't do a damn thing. You don't think that's work? Let me tell you what I got for you. How did you get into stripping? The questions you were asking. So this isn't exactly Watergate, you know. We're gonna fight. Can I at least get dressed? I have an important announcement to make. You're gonna do it. You're gonna sell the paper. Hey, you really gonna quit the main line? Why stick around? Okay, why does anybody get up in the morning? You don't. I, don't. I think we should get rid of them. That's insane. The whole office is gonna get up and walk out. Roy Walsh buys this paper, I'm walking. Me too. Me too. Me too. Well, that's that. We had some good times here, didn't we? Who really shook things up? Everybody in the unemployment line. Well, I, we should we should move on to between the lines because yeah, I, I, this was also one that I hadn't caught up until recently, um, and yeah, I, I've I've read a couple of reviews that sort of compare it a little bit to like oh, it's the print journalism version of something like broadcast news, and I definitely can see that that parallel. Uh, but you know, like the ensemble again, any anytime you get like a quality ensemble of great character actors, and that happens a lot throughout her career. But, you know, this is just like a buffet of, of of people we see in other movies and go, oh, I'm so glad that person's in this and that person's in this. And just like, oh, there's Bruno Kirby. Oh, there's Jeff Goldblum. You know, it's just like every everybody you want to see and that has a great screen presence is in this. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't know. And I even have this problem a little bit with House of Games. I just – I've never been a big Lindsay Krauss fan. Uh, so like, and she's kind of a, you know, a major part of this film and I, I wish I just felt more, I mean, she's definitely a a good character and better. Um, but this never did a whole lot for me personally, but no, I just, I really love watching everybody, you know, in this film trying to do their job and do it ethically with integrity and it's very loose and it it is kind of Altman-esque at times just the way people are interacting and talking and you know getting really caught up in 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 their world but also it's you know another romantic dramedy that would lead into something like chilly scenes of winter obviously with casting uh john hurd here as well so um no it's good i really like this movie quite a bit it's a lot of fun it's it's great to revisit it i was trying to find i had something i wrote about this film a couple years ago i'm trying to find it but um, I actually, when the restoration was was first making the rounds, there was a double feature in Los Angeles of this restoration and the 35 millimeter crossing to Lansing. And I hmm. just happened to be in LA at the time. I was still living in in um, Georgia because I was secretly taking a, a job interview at Netflix. This was right before I left PCM for uh, Netflix. And um, no longer at either of those jobs. But uh, I was there and I took an extra day to just hang out. And my friend Peter um, 
Avelino was like, I don't, I don't know if I should tell you about this thing that's going on at UCLA or not. I'm like, you got to tell me. I'm going to kill you if you don't. And he, so he told me about it. And I was like, I definitely would have killed you if you hadn't let me go back to Georgia, having not seen this double feature. So we went and I had to tell everyone that, you know, you didn't see me here kind of thing. Um, it was such an amazing double feature. Like, those movies, so good. But what I loved about... Um, between the lines and what I didn't see a lot of people talking about, and I kind of mentioned it a little bit already is that these, these, these women have a lot of um, moments where the men really aren't respecting them as autonomous beings, as autonomous coworkers. There, there's still a little bit of that, you know, um, toxic masculine masculinity of like, Oh, you're just a woman. Like we should do it our way oh, I don't respect, you know, your your thoughts on things. And I love, I really love how the women just push push back. Yeah. Both in the bedroom and in the meetings. I think I felt like I hadn't seen a lot of films from this era where the women actually spoke spoke up for themselves instead of just taking it. No, for sure. Yeah, yeah like the, the scene in the... Scene in the um strip club with the two of them sort of vying for, for their version of the piece is like this interesting power struggle between two journalists that want to run the show. And it, and at the same time, it's kind of encapsulating just the, uh, yeah, the dynamics, you know, between the two of them and yeah, like that, the, the receptionist quitting in protest of what's taking place. And yeah, that's sort of just like, timeless depiction of feeling defeated but trying to fight anyway is certainly throughout this movie and you know even as early on as when the editor is challenging the advertising guy you know i, I like i like that kind of stuff where, you know throughout this movie as well yeah i think um well you so you mentioned altman and i i was thinking like the first time i saw this i was marveling at the number of altman veterans already because you have gold bloom and gwen wells both coming off nashville in that one. But um, yeah, I think I saw this after I was already a fan of Chili Scenes of Winter. And so I was amazed that it was, it, it felt like um, they, they tap into that same idea of like that, uh, that baby boomer counterculture generation trying to fumble into adulthood and like retain some kind of idealism in like a cynical era. And uh, yeah, it, it's funny because I was thinking about like how she's coming off of Hester Street and this this really significant success and i and and it's interesting to me that she goes from that to two films that feel kind of like uh safely within i don't want to say conventions but like new hollywood kind of stories like she doesn't make girlfriends or or you know something that is like 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 an obvious women's picture i think she goes for something that feels like proto john sales territory yeah. with yeah. the lines and that yeah. and then chilly scenes of winter feels like it's in the woody allen albert brooks kind of territory as far as like that kind of romantic comedy like she doesn't really make uh what you might expect her to make off of hester street um but yeah, no, I think between the lines, I mean, I'm glad that it's, you know, with the Cohen restoration, it's getting more attention because it, yeah, that was, I don't know that it even had a DVD other than a made on demand. I mean, I'd seen the VHS, but it used to be kind of hard to see that one. And um, no, I think that that's, I think that might be the first film that really gives Jeff Goldblum room to be the persona we know. Yeah, him to it be, really I is think. like baby, it really is baby Jeff Goldblumisms. Mm hmm. Yeah, because yeah. I think before that he's like a hood and death. Yeah, you know, was it um, 
Death Wish, and he's he's got like the mute motorcycle character in Nashville, and he's got like bit parts and things. But like, uh, this is really where you see that he could be a star. I think he was one of the people like suggested as a possibility for Charles in Chili Sins of Winter. Um, and it would have been interesting had he taken that part instead of her. But uh, no, I think it's, I don't know, it's, it's one of my favorites of hers. I just, I think it's uh, like what you're saying as far as like, you know, c- characters being strong in like a chauvinistic workplace. I mean, I think that is kind of her addition to that formula. Whereas I don't know that you really get that feeling in, say, if Altman had done it, or even if Jonathan Demi had done it, because I yeah. feel like this reminds me of Demi as well. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and what you're talking about, the counter the ca- counterculture trying to be idealistic and maintain their integrity, that's that's where I get the broadcast news kind of feel, where they, you know, th- th- they're trying to maintain their journalistic integrity, you know? <laughs> and Yeah, well, it's, it's also that battle between marketing and creatives, which is... It's yeah. funny because she re-experiences that firsthand with Chili Sins of Winter with the title getting changed to Head Over Heels. It's like she's already predicting the fight she's about to have. Yeah, and it's also a case where, I don't know if we mentioned this, but, you know, Raphael Silver is like, you know, an unsung hero here and like helping her like get these movies made when like nobody would invest in her. I mean, he was like, you know, he took his money from real estate and just, you know, wanted her to have that shot directing films. And because Hester Street was a big hit, you know, they were able to get the money again, but they really had to struggle to get those early films made prior to Chili Scenes of Winter and working with a studio. I mean, these were not easy films to get off the ground and they did that all themselves. And at a time when that was really like, you know, like we were saying, like there's very few women filmmakers active in that period. And she's one of the big ones. Yeah, she really paved paved away, if not purposefully, but unintentionally paved a way for a path to feature filmmaking for a lot of women. No, most definitely. And it, and it's, it's interesting to transition into chilly scenes of winter because um, I showed it recently to my uh, partner, Sharon, because I was like, this is a different, because, you know, she, she sort of rolls her eyes often at movies like, you know, Eternal Sunshine or Punch Drunk Love, where it's just like, oh, you know, again, I hate to reduce it to just the idea of that cliche manic pixie dream girl saves the sad guy garden state kind of a thing. But she does feel like a lot of movies, you know, in in the recent times have sort of captured that and, you know, is kind of like, oh, I'm so tired of that. And I said, well, what if you know, we watch a movie that's like that from a completely different era directed by a woman and based off a book written by a woman. What, like, because like you said, Mariah, John Hurt's character in Chilly Scenes of Winter, he is a creep a lot of the time. He is a very self-absorbed jerk in a lot of instances. And I think that can bother some people, you know, like, oh, why do I want to, you know, follow this guy around? But I just think she creates this tension between like being madly in love and yet experiencing like self-loathing, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I think she does that so well in this movie. It's like a tightrope. Not to go back to Between the Lines real quick, but I finally found it was tweets, so it took me forever to find. But what I I what I thought was fascinating, not just about the movie, but about the way a lot of people wrote about the restoration is and and this ties with chili scenes too. I'll be really interested to see how people write about it with this Criterion release. 
both films really look at, at emotional abuse. Mm. I think um, John Hurt in particular is his character in both movies is very emotionally manipulative of his partners. And what I like about Joan Micklin Silver is that she not only shows deeply how men can, whether they mean to or not, emotionally abuse their partners, but she shows the women attempting to push back at that. And um, like Gwen Wells' character in um, Between the Lines, he, he crosses... He crosses some lines with what she says to her, what he says to her multiple times. And at first she sort of, it, it breaks her down, but eventually she pushes back against it, against the manipulation, against the emotional abuse. And I read a lot of uh, reviews of this film from the restoration a couple of years ago. And nobody wrote about that. Or they would use really... Um, less charged words. One person said he browbeats his girlfriend, hmm. which is a very, very like bland word for what he does to her in that movie. <laughs> like he's vicious in that movie. And I think Joe McLean Silver is aware and wants to make sure that she shows these men being horrible using words instead of yeah. instead of actually quote unquote beating them up. Right. right, right but it's right. just as it's just as destructive. But in both films it's just as destructive. Yet I I don't I didn't see a lot of the men who wrote about Between the Lines noticing that. <laughs> like they would use the same kind of words that um have been used to describe abusive men for for decades in a way that makes it seem like they're not abusive. They're just, you know, a little mean or whatever. And it's like, no, she's showing abusive men. And then, but then having women who are able to either, so they crumble a little, but they're able to push back a little as well. And and I think, I think that's a fascinating aspect of her career that she shows people this flawed and this, um, and how, how, how an abusive man can still be really charming. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, definitely. And John Hurd, I don't know, John Hurd's really good at, at finding that straddling that line between just completely repulsive and also you're like I can see why she doesn't want to leave him at the same time Charles loves Laura Laura likes Charles I want to sleep with you wait a minute Charles would marry Laura tomorrow wait a minute <laughs> but Laura's already married to a guy called Ox Joan Micklin Silver's Chilly Scenes of Winter. <laughs> now I'm no longer alone. A comedy about people trying to connect in a disconnected world. I don't think you're that great. As a matter of fact, there's quite a few things about you that I don't like. Yeah? Name one. It's different. It's offbeat. And it's always on target. Yeah. You've heard me. I love your wife. Hey, you show very good taste. It's about temptation. The Lord have mercy on your soul. Thank you. Contemplation, <laughs> adoration, and accusation. Are you seeing someone else? What? It's about deviation. Hi, Mom. And desperation. Don't worry. I'm not going to beg her. Janet, how can I get it if she won't come out of her apron? And most of all, night, Ox. the outrageous complications night, Laura. of Charles' never-ending infatuation. Good night, Sam. John Heard and Mary Beth Heard in Chilly Scenes 
of winter. Yeah, very possessive and self-absorbed and kind of bitter. And so when when he, when he's being challenged to you know on some of those characteristics, he lashes out. And, and then uh, yeah, I, I would certainly write about that more, and I probably will for my wonderful new Substack that I'm doing. Um, when once chilly scenes of winter comes up. Because, you know, I've watched it a few times now, and it's become one of my all-time favorite movies. And um, there's a scene in, in this movie where a couple, the, the two of them walk out of the movie theater. And I swear, like, almost verbatim, I've had conversations like that with a partner where it's like, if you think I'm that great, there must be something wrong with you. <laughs> you know, it's like putting Aww. putting putting your partner on a pedestal and just yeah, I mean, and it, it's it's just really interesting. It's just like I I feel like this movie is and you already mentioned it Bill, but you know, like you know, tackling into the same feeling I get when I watch something like Modern Romance, certainly just like yeah, I think you're in I think you you got you're experiencing love as codependence in a you know in a way that's very unhealthy and and makes you not a nice person at all with some of the actions that I you like do. I like that you I like that you mentioned Modern Romance because that's one where while I don't think um Albert Brooks wants you to be on the side of the character he plays. Like he wants you to see how flawed and horrible that man is. I don't know that his female character is mm. as complex as she should be. Sure. Um, because he's more interested in, in depicting this emotional, emotionally um, stunted man. Whereas, cause I'd, I'd seen modern romance and I think right after I'd seen chili scenes, um, Within a few months, actually, because one was uh, on Netflix, like I said, and one was um, at the Castro, back when the Castro in San Francisco still showed movies and um, regularly showed movies. They do occasionally now. But um, I remember thinking, like, these men were, were very similar men, but that the woman in Modern Romance, I, she didn't feel like a real person to me, mm -hmm. whereas... Um, in Joe Micklin Silver's film, she she feels like a real person, a real conflicted oh yeah woman who is is fighting with her own desires for things, but also what society is telling her that she should take from men. And and I think you, I think one of the big differences that I've I've always been trying to talk about when I I've I've seen so many films by women that I just more often than not not every not every female director does this, but more often than not women are, are more likely to make sure that their female characters have even a monochrome of agent, agency or um, they, you know, it's less difficult for the, for the actresses to find that hum, human center. Whereas a lot of male directors still, even today are not as invested in their female characters. And I think you can really feel it, but it's not something we're, it's really not something you can like here's a list like it's not a checklist sort of thing it really is a I know it when I feel it mm -hmm. but you might only notice it if you've watched more films by women because I think one of the issues is if you if 95 to 99 percent of your filmic knowledge is male directed then you yeah. wouldn't necessarily notice a difference do you know what I mean oh no definitely um, but the more films by women you watch the more you really feel it's just a little different and a little more real and a little more complex. And, and that's why I love 
that more of these films are becoming available in a way like Chili Scenes was on that um, Twilight Time, but Twilight Time never really broke out quite the same way. Like there, there's people like me, and I'm sure you guys who have many Twilight Time <laughs> Blu-rays, but they never really broke out the way that like Criterion. When something goes Criterion, it's it it's as mainstream as you can get in like film yeah. world, right? Um, it's it's always fascinating to see how the Criterion effect of how how it'll change people's perception of a film. And so I'm, I'm fascinated to see if more people come to Joe McLean Silver's films now because of this Chili Scenes release. Well, I sure hope so. And I think, Bill, you should have done, you should have done the commentary for this because this is your favorite movie, right? It is my favorite movie. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah I mean, I, I think I, it would have been nice if they had, uh, I don't know. It would have been nice if they retained the director commentary from the twilight time, but I also feel like that's, not a great commentary so i don't i don't miss it too much um but yeah no i i i don't know the this one i mean i i have been curious to see how people are going to uh receive the you know the film now in 2023 as far as like that character but um yeah no i mean i i think if you compare it to modern romance i mean there's even a scene where he treats one of his dates horribly when he you know you know uh is still just too preoccupied with an ex to, uh, mm. you know, to have any manners. I mean, there's, there's, it feels very similar to the scene with Betty and Chili Sense of Winter in, in Modern Romance. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you're right, uh, Mariah, that the, uh, yeah, the character in Modern Romance doesn't really have a whole lot of complexity or inner life. It's, she's just kind of a symbol, you know, and I think that Laura in Chili Sense of Winter is allowed to be, have bad self-esteem. And, you know, I think it's interesting that, she only really is drawn to Charles when he doesn't call her one night. Like he's like, like she responds to like being a little bit mistreated by him. And I think that that's, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, she's more complicated in that way than I think even the Laura in the novel is where, where it's like, I think that that character in the novel is a little bit more playful and receptive to him and his desire to come back. And, and, and that has an ambiguous happy ending that they try to get, in the first cut of the film and it didn't quite, it didn't quite come land. off. I think, yeah. I think, yeah. I think silver felt it was like a little too triumphant. And so it feels correct to have that kind of more ambiguous note where it's like, you know, is he over it or is he just, you know, walking away from it all like just in that moment. But um, I think I, what I like about it is the same thing I like about um, what I like about between the lines and that it's dealing with like that, uh, stumbling into adulthood and, you know, what do you do when you're, um, you know, you're in this office job and the 60s are in the rearview mirror and, like, you're still kind of talking about Janis Joplin and Woodstock and all these things, but you're just, you know, working in an office environment where the do- boss is asking you questions about, like, sex because you're of that generation to, like, you know, help his son. And um, <laughs> it, the, the, the fact that he has all this, like, excess like mental energy is like he's dealing with like this you know situation with his mother and her own kind of encroaching kind of uh you know mental issue and uh you know and everyone kind of leans on him for favors like everyone's kind of like you know like sam is like you know sleeping on his couch and um but he just puts all this focuses on this woman that he only really dated for two months because he's just you know he's 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 got bad priorities and it's just uh I think that um, 
you know, it, it's this is something that he, she gets into a little bit in a different way in, in Finnegan Begin Again. Is, but I think that this this is like the darkest film because that character gets does cross the line a couple of times, you know, with like uh, Ugh, both the yeah. stalking and like the, the threatening language that yep. I think plays differently now. I don't even know that I don't know that Joan Micklin Silver and 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 the uh, I don't know if she knew how like dark that was. I think. I, mean, I think what's I fascinating is is I mean I I don't I don't know either it's hard we won't we won't know but what's interesting is that she's willing to show men how they are right yeah it's not romanticized whereas mm-hmm. you know in, in certain especially in noir and I love noir obviously but the the brutishness in noir is a little romanticized sometimes um, not always sometimes it's just bleak and horrible. Um, but a lot of times it's a little bit romanticized, a little, you know, you rough the woman around and you kiss them kind of thing. It's very, it's very, it's not just noir, it's sort of bled into this, into the machismo movies of the 70s. Um, and she shows it not romanticized. She shows it for how terrifying and dark it is. And I, you know, I don't know if she knew that that's what she was doing or not, but she definitely you watch it with modern eyes and you're like, holy shit, <laughs> this, this man is horrible. But what I, I love, you're talking about how it's this transitional era, right? And and I do think that your transitional era from your youth into adulthood, often for people until their early 30s, it is your most selfish, your most, even more than, than teenage did. Like, I think cinema has, since the 50s, treated teenagers as the, like, most volatile era of a human's life, but I, I really think it's the twenties and early thirties. Yeah. Um, I agree. <laughs> it really is the most selfish time in people's life. Cause it is the biggest emotional growth and emotional growth really is how you either are going to become a selfish person for the rest of your life, or you're going to learn from your mistakes and start treating people better. And I, I don't know that a lot of films do a great job of showing just how bleak that, era can be for both the people who are on the receiving end of someone's emotional growth, but also for John Hurd's character going through that emotional growth and trying to grapple with who he wants to be as a man. Right. Um, I think that the, whether it was purposeful or not, it, it stands out to me as a, one of the more authentic looks at, at what that is like. Yeah. And I think that that's always kind of why it has a rewatchability for me because it is that, that complexity to that movie. And also, I mean, but it does have that same, like if you compare it to lighter films like Crossing Delancey, it still has that same sense of community and of like the everyday rituals and hanging out and having mm-hmm. conversations. It still feels like a very lived in. And I, I, we, we didn't talk about this, but I mean, she just has a great knack for like capturing a city, whether it's New yes. York or yeah. Boston or Salt Lake City. Um, it's a, Richmond, I think, in Finnegan Begins, beginning, like she, she has a sense where, like, even New York feels like a small town where, like, you can run into people that you know, and um, we'll get to Crossing Delancey, but like how, like, a character. Oh, I remember when your father's pickle stand was there. Like it, like it feels like even for big cities, like the the small town community feel. And I like that with Chilly Sense of Winter. Like all the supporting characters are interesting. Like even like the and a lot of weird like Lynch characters are in that too because you got like a. The blind uh, man, Alan Joseph from Eraserhead. You've got Francis Bay from Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet. You've got like all these <laughs> supporting characters that are from the Lynch thing. But uh, and, and Gloria Graham, it's like yeah, it's like the last great performance for her. And like right. yeah, she does have that tie to noir and 
but even to It's a Wonderful Life, <laughs> if you talk yeah. about like you know, you know, men at the end of their rope. <laughs> Yeah, no, I just, have, uh, I just think that, like, and I just, for some reason, too, movies like Your 500 Days of Summer or High Fidelity, they don't hold up in the way that something like this does. And I don't know if it is just because it's coming from Joan Micklin Silver or not, but it, like, I don't, like, now as I've grown up, and maybe it is, you know, like, oh, well, I'm not in my 20s anymore. But like, you know, seeing something like 500 Days of Summer or High Fidelity in my 20s, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is great. It's all romanticized and this is how I feel. And, oh, man, I can't wait to fall in love. And now, like, you know, years later, I get the reality of how gross, you know, it can be to be in that sort of state of mind in, in a way. It's like, again, a, a sense of controlling or, you know, trying to get another human being to live up to the person that you have in your mind. And I think some movies sort of try to capture that in a very like, I don't know, um, just idealized way that doesn't sit well with me. But like going back to something like Chili Scenes of Winter, I feel like it's more sincere and well-observed, but also like you both have said, very dark. Cause you know, at, at one point, like he says to, uh, Charles says to Laura, why would you choose someone who loves you too little over someone who loves you too much? And her reply is because it makes me feel less like a fraud. And I just go, that is an incredible, you know, just the acting between the two of them and that line, I feel like can hit home for a lot of people. So I can't wait for people to discover this movie for, for moments like that. But then you have what he says, you know, in bed to her kind of right after that. And that uh, it, it really it sends chills down your spine with him using the word rape and just saying that to her directly and i i still feel like there there is like this push and pull sometimes with like f having sympathy for him and understanding where he's coming from and then hating him for acting that way yeah 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 yeah, for sure. And I think Between the Lines is like that, too. I mean, and I, I think if you look at the novel, I mean, she could have made another Between the Lines out of the novel, mm. Chili's Into Winter, because it is another portrait of a generation kind of story. She just hones in on that one aspect of it, and everything else is kind of like coloring on the sides. But it's, you know, she could have made something that was more of a youth ensemble kind of film out of that novel if she wanted to do Between the Lines part two. But I'm glad that she she mixed it up and, and focused it more specifically on that kind of dynamic with the, with Charles. But um, yeah, no, I, I think, um, and just shout out to the DP on this, Bobby Byrne, who uh, is the DP on Joan Darling's first love, another ensemble oh, female tour from that right. period. I love that movie. And that is not available. And I'm like, mm. when is that? They keep like these boutique distributors keep plucking obscure films by men and putting them on Blu-ray and I'm like okay somebody figure out First Love please I saw yeah. this is another one I saw on TCM and I was like and they showed it at like 2 in the morning I and I did not have a DVR at the time so I had to stay up and it was worth it it was worth staying up for and yet you bring you're the only person I feel feel like I don't know who's actually seen it I wrote about that and between the lines for uh, a column for Rupert Pupkin speaks, actually. Oh, oh yes. I remember that. Yeah. I yeah. remember reading that. 
Yeah, it used to be. Well, you mentioned the uh, the golden age of Netflix streaming, and that was a film that I think I caught on Netflix streaming when all those libraries were just. Yeah, it they used to be need, on Netflix. They need yeah. to come. Tubi needs to find those contracts and pick them up because <laughs> there's so many movies that I remember watching during that era that I want to tell people to watch, and then I go to look like, is it? Can I actually tell someone to watch this? Oh, I can't. It's not on streaming or on home video, except for like maybe a bootleg VHS. Yeah. Um, well, the master there's exists, that, so there's, yeah, they should there's put that it out. Missing, there's that missing movies uh, group that is trying to untangle a lot of these rights. I did not see First Love on their list of, like, the 100 films they're, they're focusing on, and I was like, dang. Um, <laughs> because they were, like, my one hope. Um, yeah, but, well, hopefully maybe, somebody rescues it. I mean, it, it, again, it gets it gets written up in that book I mentioned earlier, and it's it's great. I mean, I think it's... So much better than Love Story, which I guess it probably would have com- been compared to at the time. Oh, I'm sure it would have been. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It is a much better film. Yes. We should start it's our own better. streaming service, us three. I know. Truly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, finding all really these obscure good films. movies. But the other thing that Chile Scenes of Winter does in terms of connecting it to the rest of her oeuvre is it introduces us to Peter Riegert. Mm hmm. <laughs> yeah. He's fantastic in this movie. Oh, yeah. When it, when. It, <laughs> When he's supposed to buy twenty dollars worth of food, or you know, like he gives him a twenty dollar bill, and of course he goes out and buys a bunch of wine. I just go, oh god! And he's just like perpetually in his bathrobe. As someone who now works from home, I am also perpetually in the state of pajamas <laughs> or bathrobe, and so I really feel it. Yeah, I understand it. Well, you know, some days I'm like, I'll just get dressed, even though I'm not leaving the house. But most days I'm like, you know what? I know I'm not leaving the house. <laughs> <laughs> Why bother? Well, hopefully you're not flicking it. matches into the light fixture. Hopefully you're not yes. doing that. Yeah. Not quite, not quite. Okay, good. I was disappointed that he wasn't interviewed for either of these Blu-rays. I, I have accosted multiple people involved with Chili's in the Winter over the years, including Peter Riegert, and I did tell him how much I loved that movie, Uncrossing Delancey. But um, yeah, he's he's at a, is he at a festival right now as we, we speak? Yeah, yeah, he was at the TCM festival for um, oh. their show Uncrossing Delancey for its anniversary this year. Yeah, someone just sent me a post about it as we're talking. So <laughs> I guess well, there was a, an interview with him talking about crossing Delancey with um, was it Amy Irving, I guess. Yeah, yeah so, I think they were all there at that screening. Yeah. Well, I think technically Finnegan Begin Again is before crossing Delancey, correct? Um, yeah. 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 After, after, um, after Chili Sins of Winter, which, um, you know, was made and released as head over heels in 79 and then reissued uh more successfully as Chili Sins of Winter in 82. Um she does a lot of theater around then, including album with your buddy Keith Gordon and Kevin Bacon in nineteen eighty. Oh, yeah, I just got an email from Keith Gordon this morning. <laughs> yeah. So I'll ask him about that yeah, she, next time we talk. Yeah, and she did it's well it's funny because I, I you know, I'm always kind of frustrated when film people I follow have like all this great theater work that you can't re-experience because there's no recordings of it because I, I had this problem when I interviewed Mink Stoll and she does all this great theater work around the same time as the John Waters films and you can't you just got to take everyone's word for it that it was amazing because there's no records of it but Joan Micklin Silver does a lot of theater in the early 80s between the um, the initial three features and then uh, uh, I guess Crossing Delancey is the return to theatrical films but but Finnegan uh, Begin Again. I mean, am I am I right that I'm the only one? Have either of you seen that one? Oh, I've, no, I, 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 I did catch up with it thanks to you. Okay, that's one I still haven't seen. And if my friend P 
Peter Avellino is listening. I'm really sorry. <laughs> He's been asking me to watch that movie for a long time. I will get to it. I promise. Yeah, when I won't, I won't spoil. I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it yet. As far as but, it, but it's it's like a. Um, it's interesting that it's you know it's compared to Chili Sins of Winter because it is like a kind of quirky romance. It's not quite as dark, but it's um, it's dealing with older characters because uh, Mike Finnegan, who play, played by Robert Preston, I think is sixty five, and yeah, then, I think so. Uh, uh, Mary Tyler Moore is forty nine, but it's more about their friendship. I mean, like th- there's a romance to it, but it's it's more kind of just um, like he's he's kind of like the characters in between the lines and that he's in that newspaper world, but he's kind of, he's being slowly put out to pasture and he's, he's no longer a reporter. He's now writing, uh, essentially like a dear Abby type advice column under a pseudonym. And she's a school teacher having an affair with a married man. And it kind of anticipates crossing Delancey in that it's, um, you know, a woman having to choose between, uh, kind of a more, sexy kind of forthright kind of you know partner and then a, a more underdogish kind of uh character um but it, it, sam waterson plays the man that she's having the affair with um and it's got um giancarlo esposito in a supporting part like early on in his career shot by robbie mueller who's a dp that people would know from all the vendors and Jarvis. oh yeah that that's one of the reasons why i was excited to see it that was why i was like oh robbie mueller shot this whoa yeah not that the old vhs transfers do a lot of favors to the to the look of the film but it's you know it's it's um i think it's like one of the buried gems of her career because like like we're saying like i mean you can find copies of it on youtube but it's never really had like a a proper release since the vhs era and i don't think hbo really pushes it on like their streaming platforms no. or anything so mm-hmm. it's got a, a, i don't know if you mentioned this it's got sylvia sydney and it's one of those sylvia sydney blind spots i have as well i will i, I really need to watch it i just keep hoping maybe there'll be an actual blu-ray i don't know there should be i don't know i mean i yeah, I've spoken to um, I've done I I've worked with Daniel Kramer who wrote the bio, autobiography or no the well the biography on uh, Joan Micklin Silver. I don't know when that's coming out, but um, I know that that this is one of his favorites of hers. And I I don't know like he's never indicated that there was any studio interest in, in doing anything with this, even though it's you know I don't know it's it's so charming, um, but yeah I, I don't know and Sylvia Sydney I mean this catches her right before. People like Tim Burton start using her for yeah. like kind of quirky kind of right. appearances, and this is yeah, um, yeah. No, it's I, I mean I, I'll I'll I won't spoil any of the jokes or anything uh, for you, Mariah. But yeah, no, I think you'll like it if you you know enjoy the uh, the eight, certainly the '80s Micklin Silver films like Crossing Delancey. It's got that same kind of uh, relaxed kind of comedy drama, like in a small. Well, in a city, I mean, they're they're, but it's it's Virginia versus New York. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's it's definitely. I mean, it's got some dated qualities. I mean, the music to it sounds kind of like Kenny G soloing over the Family Ties theme. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's still it's still. Uh, I don't know. Like, I it's 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 a nice surprise because you know, given how little coverage it gets, it's. I think this and um, to a lesser extent, uh, Fish in the Bathtub are like the ones that people should should find if they haven't if they only know her from the hits yeah um, but well yeah. i'm i'm coming at this as a huge fan of robert preston and 
the you know I one of the first movies I loved as a kid was The Last Starfighter, and I just like he was one of my favorite characters in that movie. And obviously, he's just playing the music man. So once I knew he was in this, I'm like, well, I'm I'm going to make time for this. And uh, also, um, the Big Lebowski, the Big Lebowski himself, David Huddleston's here. And um, the warden from Shawshank Redemption, Bob uh, Gutton or Guten, uh, shows up. But like, yeah, this is this is really good. It's, I mean, she's just so good at capturing relationships forming between very different people to some degree, or at least here it's like, yeah, like you mentioned, Bill, you know, like the May December romance, but still they're you know they're sixty five and in their forties, but it's it's really sweet. And also, you know, just Robert Preston's like his character is so well established early on when he, when he boards a bus and is just like interacting with every single person on there. And like, like he's like the ultimate extrovert, you know, and, and just like so friendly and easygoing. I mean, he's certainly got dark stuff from his past and, you know, caring for Sylvia Sidney and, you know, they experienced some tragedy of their own in the past, but it really just, it tells the story of like two lonely people finding a connection and, and solace in, in one another. And I just love Robert Preston. <laughs> so, I mean, that's really what it comes down to is just, if you're a fan of his and you're a fan of this cast and certainly Mary Tyler Moore, I mean, geez like this and along yeah. and, and along with um, another movie that I don't think has, I don't think it's been released on Blu-ray. It has been released on DVD, but another movie that was made for HBO that I wish more people would see and, and talk about is the positively true adventures of the alleged Texas cheerleading murdering mom, oh, yeah. which I wish more people like, that's one of those titles where I'm like, come on, let's get, let's get on board and get that on a streaming service. It's or, Holly Hunter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that Holly Hunter? Yeah. I'm surprised. Michael Ritchie movie. Real. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But both of these are great. I mean, I again, like if you're a fan of what she goes on to do with Crossing Delancey, I think you'll absolutely be um, enraptured <laughs> by Finnegan Begin Again. Even though, even though, yes, Bill, you're right, it has data qualities to it for sure. You can tell it's made in the '80s. <laughs> well, I think the thing with like '70s made for television movies, like one of the reasons that that took off was because you had all of these great old Hollywood stars and. And television mm-hmm. stars kind of like being able to like reinvent themselves with like characters that like Hollywood theatrical films weren't going to let them play because, you know, their age. And I think that, um, you know, a film like Finnegan Begin Again, because Robert Preston and Mayor Tellen Moore are not young people, like they weren't going to get a chance to get a film. Yeah. Like it'd be harder to get the money to make a theatrical film with that cast. Right. And right. I think that television... You know, HBO, th- I mean, this is kind of like, you know, back in the days when like, th- I think like this is maybe like their 14th original feature. So it's like there's, it's kind of like the way like Netflix is now, like they're trying to build an audience and like, you know, with original programming. And this was like their early days of HBO, um, relatively, I guess. And um, so I think that they were looking to bring uh, a large television audience because of Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, she's coming off Ordinary People, but she's primarily, you know, famous from television. And, you know, so it's. You know, I, I think that this had some kind of audience at the time, but I, I yeah. wonder if people would talk about it more now if it had a theatrical release. I think it might have played a festival or two, but for the most part, it's like made for cable and it's shown in '85, and then it's and then it's you know kind of pushed aside. And uh, I don't know. It's yeah. I, I think um, I think one film I was reminded of watching it again was um, 
I don't know if you thought of this at all, Jim, but uh, I thought of Jim Jarmusch's Patterson for some reason. Yeah. I don't know if it's just because like... I can see that. It, just like the way everyone seems to know each other in the town, right. but it's not quite as sit- sitcom-y as like some later... Uh, some later Joan Micklin Silver films like get a little mm-hmm. sitcom-y, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. not in a bad way, but they, but they do. And uh, this still feels like kind of rooted with, um, you know, her new Hollywood era stuff, kind of like right at the border between... You know, between the Lions chili scenes and the crossing Delancey uh, stuff. But uh, no, it's uh, definitely happy to shout this out. Uh, Me too. Me on too. A podcast. Um, I think the next film, I think Mariah should lead the conversation because I know she <laughs> loves it. And I do too now. to this woman, Lionel. Loyalty like this doesn't walk through the door every day. Maybe I'll just call him. Is he married? Separated. Oh. You made an appointment with a marriage broker? When I was your age, I was married. I had a life. Oh. A dog should live alone, not people. When an uptown girl... She's great. She's funny, honest direct gets fixed up with a downtown guy he makes pickles 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 huh? he sells pickles pickles you are joking they both end up on the rocky road to romantic comedy amy irving it's a match man not so fast crossing delancey crossing delancey is just one of those movies i don't know it's it's one of those movies because it went it, it, you know, it was theatrically released. It was a, not, not a hit, but it was definitely like people knew it. But it, I was three when it came out. So I did not know it. But it never really, it's not one that was like revived when I was, you know, first getting into really getting into movies the way that certain other 80s films, you know, like um, Thief is always revived and After Hours was always available and all kinds of, you know, those those sort of films. Crossing the Lancy, not necessarily the one where everyone is like, oh, we should program this, right? But I, uh, when I worked at Warner Brothers, I had access to the, not quite as prestigious, but the Warner Archive closet, um, where every single movie that had ever been released on Warner Archive made on demand lived in this closet in the Warner Brothers building. And um, so after I'd seen... Crossing the Lancy on TCM and found out that it was a Warner Brothers one. I then borrowed the disc and I watched that disc many times before I gave it back. Um, it's, it's, and then I eventually, I, when I no longer had access to that closet, bought my own copy of the disc, but I keep hoping it'll be a, a Blu-ray. And I guess we're hinting that it, perhaps it will be. So that's great, but it's, it's got its 35th um, anniversary this year. Um, Right, because it was 88? 88, yep. Okay, actually, I was two then. That's my excuse for not seeing it. In 1988, <laughs> I was two. But it's one of those movies, when I watched it, I was like, as a, as a lover of the romantic comedy, how did I not... How was I not able to just watch this on loop as a kid like I did, you know, um, Moonstruck or something else from the same era? I had Moonstruck on the on VHS. I watched Moonstruck so many times. I know exactly like all of the ads that were on that MGM release, you know. <laughs> yeah, but this one, not, I did not get the same. You know, I think it was on VHS, but somehow it just wasn't one that bubbled 
up. And so I watch it, and I'm like, this is the kind of movie that if I'd seen it at eight, like I should have, I would have I would have seen it a hundred times by now. Um, I have since then watched it. Um, <laughs> I've seen it on the big screen, I think, three times now because they LA likes to show it, which is good. Um, but it's it's just it's one of those movies I like to call kind of like a warm hug of a movie. That's exactly what it, I was is, thinking too. Yeah, it just yeah, it is essentially. A romance. It is about Izzy and her finding a partner and understanding that her own idea of what she, who she should be with, and who she should actually be with, because she doesn't really know herself, um, evolves throughout the 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 story. Um, but it's also because it is about. It isn't just like the the the, the main romance kind of plot where it's like a woman likes a person, but actually it's the boy next door kind of thing, and through plot happenings she ends up with a boy next door that, that that's a lot of romantic comedies but in this one it really is an introspective it really is her she has to make these mistakes and she has to learn what it is she really wants out of life and i think that's part of why this is such a um a more grown-up take on the rom-com is is she she doesn't just fall for the wrong guy and then the right guy is always there she has to realize who she is first exactly before she can even like and and what I love about Peter Rieger, the pickle man, is like he tells he basically tells her that he's basically like I don't think you know yourself. <laughs> you should figure yourself out, and I'll be maybe be here selling my pickles. And I think that I think that's a uh, that's wonderful. I wish more romantic comedies. I review a lot of romantic comedies because they're my it's my favorite genre. I know I you know everyone thinks it's noir. I do love noir, but truly I'm a romantic comedy person at heart and there's so many bad romantic comedies today so yeah. many because they don't understand that it's not just the plot machinations it's it's the character and the character arc and this movie is the one people should be studying if they want to write a great romantic comedy because the characters every single character from izzy to the pickle man to the shitty guy that she falls for the writer to her bubby they're all so well-rounded and so real and cast perfectly. Um, and then, to your point, I think, Bill, you mentioned this. She's a really great builder of, of city worlds. You, you feel the, that the city as a character in this movie. You, you feel the Lower East Side where Bubby lives. And you feel the, like, I think it's Upper West Side, maybe, where the, the literati world that she mm-hmm. wants to be in. And you feel those distinct world so beautifully crafted and then and then there's the places in the middle where she's like having her she's claiming she's having her her um birthday dinner somewhere fancy but she's really having it at the grace papaya (laughs) and and that's one of those places that's kind of in the middle where it's it's like that's where a a working person who's not rich would actually be eating is, is a slice of pizza um it's just a beautiful movie i have watched it so many times and the lovely thing about the Warner Archive disc is if you leave it on like you watch it and then you forget that you have the Blu-ray player on it'll just replay it so I've a couple times watched it twice through just because I left it on the like menu long enough that it just started playing again Um, I recommend that yeah, it's one of those movies yeah, when it was over I wanted to immediately watch it again so (laughs) that, that makes sense and when that woman bursts into the acapella rendition of some enchanted evening, 
That's oh like my it, God. that is like exactly what I want in movies. <laughs> you know, like I saw that and I was just like, <gasps> with her with her chock full of nuts, like yes. can to get tips. It's amazing. And the way the cutting is perfectly, the cut to the guy turning off his boombox. Some enchanted You will see a stranger. You will see a stranger across a crowded room. And somehow you'll know. You'll know even then. You'll know you will see him again and again. Some enchanted evening. You will hear him laughing, you will hear him laughing across a crowded room. Then fly to his side and make him your own. Or all through your life you will dream all alone. Once you have found him, never let him go. Once you have found him, never let him I was just like, oh my god, I I love this movie so much. <laughs> and again, it's so weird that I and I I I, I even think back to when you know, like, because I've always had a copy of Roger Ebert's Home Video Companion, and he gave this like two and a half stars and really dismissed it. And I was just kind of like, what are you missing with this? This is like Moonstruck level great, you know? It I, is. It it really is. And yeah. and I love that she. That uh, Joe Michael and Silver fought to make sure that it stayed Jewish. Yeah, like they there's a many interviews with her at the time where you know various uh, executives were like, "Can we? Does Izzy have to be Jewish?" And it's like, okay, it's from a Yiddish play. Like, come on, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Right, right. And I, the story, if if I remember correctly, is that basically she saw Amy Irving eating popcorn at a movie. Was like, that's who should be Izzy. Amy Irving at the time was still with Spielberg. Spielberg was able to basically say, I'm I'm the most popular director in Hollywood right now. And I say, let her do it. And they're like, okay, fine. <laughs> it's like, Thank goodness. that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy that she had to sort of uh, pull the string that big in order to make a movie as if, as if uh, Jewish themes are taboo or something. And it's not, it's not, like you watch it now and it's just I don't see how anyone would be like oh no this is too Jewish like I don't know but yeah obviously there's a lot of um, just everyone a lot of what's the word I'm looking for um, ugh. I, I'm, I can't think of the word I'm looking for it's okay Bill what do you think of Crossing Delancey I hope you like it <laughs> I do. I do like it. Yeah, no, I, and it's funny that you mentioned Moonstruck because in my notes I had said like a Jewish Moonstruck in, uh-huh. the, in the notes. But yeah, no, and I, I think that, I mean, yeah, I think what was it Spielberg was able to get it like, you know, his his influence is how it gets out there. But yeah, and it was, I think, her biggest hit since Hester Street. It may be even bigger, um, although it, it's... It, it made sixteen million on a four million dollar budget, so it yeah. at least made money. It made its money back. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. I mean, that, I mean, it was a film that I heard about as a kid. You know, I mean, it was it was in all the video stores. Like, I mean, it, it was successful, and I think that that kind of sets her up for the maybe the broader comedies that come after this. But um, yeah, I know. I mean, I, I've read Roger Ebert's negative review of it, and I think that he was just focusing on the formula, which as a formula, I mean, you do. 
you do know from the minute that she meets Peter Rieger how it's going to end. But I think that the way it's told is so charming. And I think that all of the the little details are why it's got a cult following. Like, I mean, I think yeah. about the um, like the way that the father and the friends sing happy birthday and one of them's an opera singer. <laughs> or yeah. the, um, and then they cut to the co-workers doing it and David Hyde Pierce is playing a viola. Yeah, or um, that's a great or just sequence. like the, the rituals of her life, like the way that she gets takeout or the way that the social gatherings showcase kind of a close knit Jewish community. But I don't yeah. think it's like I don't think it's like as. I mean, I don't find Hester Street um, hard to access, but I think that this is a much more mainstream take on Judaism in New York than that film is. But yeah. I think that they, they um, I don't I think what, you mentioned the Some Enchanted Evening, uh, and I thought about, I thought about like the performance artist scene in Between the Lines or even Pete's dance with the nurse and Chili's in the Winter, like this little sudden bit of whimsy that, um, but it's also, they're interrupting run dmc to have that moment like it's like it's a new york that is still a real new york like it's not i mean it's i mean they make a not there's a reference in the dialogue to annie hall like i mean you know the the obvious comparison at the time would have been you know woody allen's films is coming right around the same time as like hen and her sisters Mm -hmm. but it's it's not quite as stylized as his stuff i mean this feels like it's in keeping with her universe but it's not quite as uh blinders on as far as like it, it, it is kind of a um i mean they do dance to benny goodman like it is a conservative film it is a film that ultimately prioritizes like tradition over you know going with the assimilationist you know writer who gets called out for not writing or for writing in english i think is the, like when you know talking about that author that she's dating like it is a film that is like you know it's good to be modern but it's also good to remember tradition like it is a conservative film in that in that messaging but it's not in, in a negative way, because I think that that's part of why it's appealing. Um, but yeah, yeah and, I, I, and the way like the pickle man isn't perfect, right? Sam's not like he's got he's got some moments where he was a little, you know, a little flawed as well. But she's so blinded by her need to assimilate that she won't even look back. Yeah, which which I think what I love about that and how it fits in nicely with her other films is like the Anton guy. He's exactly who she thinks she should be with. But what, what I love is how subtle, what a, what a jerk he is. Like he, he basically is like the John Heard character here. He, every time they, I I've watched this movie many times and I've, I've, I've also, every time I watch it, I watch like a different character to sort of see how they're crafted. And what's interesting is she immediately introduces him as this like goal. Right. And he's staring at her. But every single thing he does to Izzy is like belittling Mm -mm. every single thing. And she never sees it until the very end. And and I love I love that um, the character like the movie doesn't force the character to to burst her her bubble. She has to grow herself. And I think I think, um, like I said, I think more rom-coms should try to emulate that because it isn't the formula is good i think i think the reason the the films like this have a formula is because that's that's a that's storytelling you know like epics have a formula everything has a formula it's how you change within that formula and how you craft characters within that formula that i think we're losing as as a as a film art Mm -hmm. (laughs) and this is such a beautiful um 
showcase of how, you know, like, and how each character that she casts, each actor she casts clearly understands the journey their characters are going through as well. Even if, even if they're not the lead, you know, they have to have that, know that. And you see, you see the way that Jerome Crabby plays Anton, you see him sort of zero in on her and realize he's going to need her help <laughs> fulfilling, you know, his administrative needs or whatever. So he does exactly what he needs to do to, to keep her under that spell. Is that a huge plot point? Not really. It's kind of in the background. But if you follow his character, you see him thinking through this and trying to make that, um, try to, you know, have her fall into his web that way. And it's it's fascinating. Yeah, she's able to find the gray areas in characters like that, for sure. Just not making them, not demonizing him or romanticizing another. I think that's what makes her films really special, too, is that. Yeah. Yeah that quality I was just going to say that um, that when I went to a screening of this in New York it was sold out with a line around the block um, so it does have its audience hmm. in New York at least <laughs> there's the pickle bookstore now I've been to it <laughs> it's called sweet pickle books they have crossing Delancey stuff all over it it's right near Delancey they sell pickles they sell books uh, Amy Irving just released her album and did That's an right. interview inside the pickle bookstore um Highly recommend the pickle bookstore. Do you know anything about the play? Because I, I, Susan Sadler wrote the play, but I could find almost nothing about it when I was looking through old newspaper articles about it. I, I couldn't find any like coverage of it. Like, like I don't know how long it ran or anything like that. But no, I don't. I don't know much about it other than probably the same stuff you read. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, as much as I love the majority of Joan Micklin Silver's work. Uh, like you, Bill, my first exposure, probably not, not realizing who, you know, directed it, of course. Oh, you know, I, and I, and I, I mentioned earlier, there's, you know, once in a while, there'll be a, an actor or an actress from just like, eh, they don't, they don't click with me for whatever reason. And, and uh, even at a younger age, I just, I, I, Patrick Dempsey does, just does nothing for me. So, when he has to carry a whole movie, no I'm McDreamy like, for you. No, no, no. I'm McSteamy or McCreamy <laughs> or whatever the other ones he's are. McDreamy. He's he's McDreamy. McSteamy's the other guy. Yeah. Well, I I understand the you know like yeah that that show's been on forever and he sort of recreated his own his own like because he was formerly like just just skinny nerdy dude and all those. Uh, like can't yeah, find me love. He completely rebranded himself. Yeah, completely yeah. with that show. <laughs> no, I, I, I get that. I get that entirely. But in this era, nope. Um, lover boy, lover boy. Randy Boda delivers pizza. Senior pizza. Senior pizza. It's about time. At least that's what his boss thinks. Hey, Bodick, you are really quite the popular guy, aren't you? His parents don't know what to think. He never brings girls home to me. Nobody's going to find out. Yeah, he never even talks about girls anymore. She just insisted in a Kyoko. Kyoko mm. is like... <sighs> but his customers know what they've ordered. I have a fantasy. Beautiful women actually pay you 200 bucks a piece to sleep with them? 
I probably have watched it a few times when I was younger because, you know, we had we had a cheater box, so we had free HBO, and I was just like, <sighs> sometimes I would randomly watch anything, and uh, you know, when you're at a certain age, for I'm someone like, slightly younger, can you can you explain what a cheater box like? How does that work? That was just like, I mean, my dad got it through some dude at work, and it was just like all you had to do was hook up this special box, and. You know, it was just like a regular cable box, but for some reason, I don't even know how it worked, really. It was just, now you have free HBO. Now you have free Showtime. That's fascinating. Now you have free Cinemax. That is fascinating. And, yeah, I... Maybe if my dad was still around, I could ask him specifically old, how that works. That was like the, the old password sharing. Yeah. Or like old old school VPN kind of style. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And that was dangerous for somebody who was getting, you know, hooked on movies. And sometimes, yeah. well, if if I can't sleep, I guess I'm going down to watch whatever's on HBO at one in the morning. And yeah, uh, <laughs> which is hit and miss. But, you know, every once in a while, I'd see a good horror movie or something. But still, like... Uh, I've, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen Loverboy a few times, you know, and re- recognizing that I it's not good, but <laughs> again, like, even re-watching it now, just because it's Patrick Dempsey, it, it's kind of a chore for me to sit through, but then whenever he interacts with a particular character actress that pops up, I'm like, oh, I'm glad that they're in this, and that's enjoyable to see, you know? Um, but, I yeah, I... It's I don't like it. <laughs> just like the idea of a pizza delivery guy doing what he does, and I, I realize he's doing it for for lonely housewives and who who have really shitty husbands. But eh, I don't know. It's 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 not for me. It's just not something I'm ever going to be like championing in any way. <laughs> but, it's Robin Schiff, the uh, writer of Robin and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, <laughs> the screenplay for that. Wow. Well, there's a movie I love. Romeo and Michelle, of course. That's a classic. Yes, yeah. that's a that's a stone cold that's classic. A, that's a more well remembered film. Than mm-hmm, Loverboy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it was. I mean, I I saw it as a kid, and I, I it's never one I've loved. But um, I think I do think it's interesting that it's yeah, like a teen sex comedy written directed by women, uh, where it's about women's pleasure more than the horny young man kind of thing. That sure. like was the primarily kind of how those films kind of operated. I don't know what it's trying to say about these women all preferring a boy over the various toxic well, men in their life. I mean, maybe there's like a message to it that is, you know, like subliminally, because I guess it's being targeted to the the young male audience for teen sex comedies, but it, it feels like the, I don't know. I, I don't know if, if, if the intended audience is that, or if it's contemporaries of Joan Micklin Silver, who would have been what, like in her fifties when she directed this. Yeah. I don't know. What it feels confusing to me. And, it's one I still haven't. It's another one I, I still haven't seen. But I, I'm interested to see. I remember around this era in the early '90s. This is '89, but in the early '90s, my mom used to always talk about how there were all these movies and things about like uh, older women seducing younger boys, and like that was a, a thing she noticed. But she also noticed all the women her age were also talking about it, and she thought it was disturbing. Um, I don't know what she was talking to like child me about this i don't know she didn't have any girlfriends to talk to about but when i first read about this movie i was like i wonder if my mom saw this movie and that was part of why she felt it was a trend maybe it was a trend maybe a lot of those films have sort of you know fallen away and so we don't remember them anymore but i think there really was something in the waters in the late 80s early 90s and 
the early days of like the cougar movement um <laughs> that maybe that's what this is maybe that's what this was tapping into it's a good band name i don't know this is a, this is a, a conjecture based on me remembering my mom talking about this i actually do think there were like women in my hometown who were like inappropriately having an affairs with teenage boys too which is mm. not good um, but this was kind of that era where same thing when you flip it with all the like Lolita style teenage girls with men and the way that the media played the played it as if it was the girl's fault kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, I wonder if that's what they were trying to tap into. I haven't seen it, so I don't know how well yeah. it, it goes, but, um, and you also always wonder with films like this, if there was like studio interference where they're like, well, we can only market this at x you know demographic and so you need it to make it you know you need to turn this part up and that part down i wouldn't be surprised i wonder if that's part of it well it's it's not yeah i mean doesn't like doesn't i don't think it has any nudity in it i'm like i'm unless i'm forgetting something it's not like so i don't think it's really pitched to like the porky's audience so much but it's but i mean it i mean there's only so many kind of ways that they sold those kind of like sex farces with like a young boy (laughs) hero so i mean you know obviously this is like what like a 20 years out from the graduate so i mean maybe they're trying to evoke that a little bit with that but because i mean it's a case where i mean again like strong women taking control in all the scenes like he's just kind of you know dominated by the first woman that like initiates him into like becoming a gigolo and it's played as a comedy i mean it's not like a, a heavy movie but it's you know it is dealing with um you know, at first, like he's engaging in sex with them, but it's also like he's listening to them talk and like dancing with them and like just yeah. paying attention to them. And it's like about like, you know, not just fulfilling a sexual need, but just fulfilling needs in general that the men in their lives are are are, are falling short of. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think even just in the late 80s, it's so interesting, like how a big TV star like Kirstie Alley or someone in the biggest movie of all time, like Carrie Fisher, you know, like they are just supporting parts in this sex comedy. Cause that's just how Hollywood worked even in the eighties. I mean, as far as giving them parts after a certain point, but um, yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it's no buried gem. I think it's, you know, I'd be interesting to hear what you take, what your take on it is Mariah. Cause I, yeah, I, yeah, I wish for I sure. been able yeah. to watch it before we recorded. Um, just definitely had one of those weeks that got away from me. But I, it's one I'm fascinated. It's interesting to hear that both of you still also think it's not great. Which I, I'm always fascinated when there's uh, a film in a filmography where almost everything is good. And then there's one thing that's not good. And I'm like, what? And I wonder if that you said there was a, a, a biography in the works. So I wonder if, if the biographer maybe got solved the clue of like what what well, is she also movie? got let go from blind date when um that bruce willis movie oh, Blake, that's wow. a terrible movie that's yeah. a terrible well, movie because well, yeah. it was originally madonna and sean penn madonna and sean penn got rid of john micklin silver and then they left the project and then it became this i mean break from uh television into movies for bruce willis but yeah, yeah that, a, was, that was that was that was the film that i think she almost did before crossing delancey so she was flirting with something like a broad hollywood kind of farce comedy before Loverboy. But I know when Loverboy came out, a lot of the reviews were just like, why is Joan Micklin Silver making this? Yeah. Um, because, I mean, she had she just coming likes... off of, of, of a pretty well success, you know, but one of her biggest successes, you know, the I wonder if she likes like French, French. What I've also found is I feel like American directors very rarely nail the sex farce. 
it just I just don't I just don't feel like America's great at sex at doing sex parts. Yeah, <laughs> it's that's like a good point. Kind of see like American filmmakers trying to do like um um Lena Wertmuller style films. Those never work either. Like Italian grotesque comedy, like in a, in American milieu, it just doesn't work. I wonder. I mean, I don't know. Not really. I'm extra interested in watching this movie now, just as from a an intellectual experience. I think the I think the only one that comes to mind is um, Down with Love, but that's that's like a pastiche. You know, that's kind of like yeah, really capturing. The, well, and that that's that's re- referencing the like Rock Hudson Doris Day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ones that are their own genre, pretty much. Right, right. But yeah, there's. I'd have to look into that and see like if there's a really good example of a sex farce that because like yeah this was an era of chock full of them and this is you know like and sometimes yeah yeah it's like a teenage boy i'm like oh this is good yeah maybe i'm gonna find this fun and entertaining and uh you know i even back then i didn't and something like can't buy me love certainly doesn't hold up oh good lord no no (laughs) no but you know it's just yeah, there's, it's an interesting period. I'm. I, I wonder if Karina Longworth has covered this in her recent, because um, she's she's really diving. I think more into the '90s right now, and certainly. Yeah, this like, yeah. this uh, decade or this uh, season was erotic '90s. Yes, erotic. But I don't 90s. know if she talked about Lover Boy in the '80s one or not. I'm not sure. It's not really erotic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's yeah. probably why she didn't cover it, I would imagine. No, no. I mean, I was thinking about, like, I mean, you know, directors don't always have the option of pursuing everything for purely artistic self-expression mm-hmm. reasons. This could have been a case where, like, it's a studio movie. Patrick Dempsey is coming off of Can't Buy Me Love. Here's a big wad of money. You want to make a comedy? Sure. Well, <laughs> you know, maybe they thought they could make it into something more elevated than it was. But mm-hmm. I think even if you get to Big Girls Don't Cry, they get even. I mean, she's definitely comfortable taking on some big studio projects. I mean, even far back as the 70s, I think she was happy not to have to scrape all the money together themselves with the Between the Lines, Hester Street kind of thing. Like, she's happy working with real money. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's also just the American health insurance of it all <laughs> oh, of course yeah. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> you do a well, studio I mean, film you, you're gonna have some insurance well she's a little bit older than uh penelope spheris or amy heckerling since you mentioned her but i mean all all three of them are like trying to navigate that hollywood studio comedy period around that same time i mean amy heckerling i think really kind of nailed it the best but obviously penelope spheris you know had like you know, an enormous hit around that same time with with Wayne's World. I mean, it, and they didn't seem like on paper like that's who you would think would be directing the biggest yeah. comedies. Yeah. But that's a good point. I think if you compare Hackerling to Silver, um, who are very different voices in my mind, although you could probably draw comparisons between Big Girls and something like Clueless. But I, di- I think it just shows that like Hackerling is maybe more skilled at that. I think, as far as the, as, a, as a broad comedy director. Once upon a time, my mom and dad got married and lived happily ever after. Yeah, right. More like eight long, miserable years and a very messy divorce. Next, mom meets Keith Powers. Anyway, he's a rich widower with three kids, so I get two stepbrothers and one stepsister. Meanwhile, back in San Francisco, dad gets lucky and marries Barbara. There she is right there. And eventually I have a half-sister, Jessica. Then dad gets unlucky, gets caught cheating, and yep, you guessed it, with twins. Okay, where's my blue cosmetic face mask? Your face? I give up. I 
tested it for dioxins. For what? If I discovered dangerously high levels of methylene phosphate. That doesn't clog your pores, does it? Her brothers and sisters are on her nerves. <laughs> You're dead, Kurt! Her parents are on her case. We'll just stand there, punish someone! Me? You've got to be kidding. I quit this family. And she's on the way. I cannot just take you with me. Now what can they say? You're my brother. To finding herself. Are we there yet? Of course. That's it. She's with Josh. Yeah, no, I, I've seen Big Girls Don't Cry. They get even a couple of times as well. Um, again, I, who knows if it played on cable quite often during that time. But, um, you know, she talks to the camera. and That always irks me. Um, but, again, what, what really... Like, going back to this one, again, the cast, the ensemble here is just full of people that I love that it's just kind of hard not to like at least find some pleasure in watching people like Griffin Dunn and Adrian Shelley interacting, you know, in, in the same scenes as they're searching for this runaway girl played by Hillary Wolf. And it's, it's cute. It's whimsical. It's, you know, not, it's very slight, but I don't know. I still, I still find it, relatively entertaining just because of everybody involved. Like Jenny Lewis is in this and David Strathairn and Dan Futterman. And it's like even little Ben Savage is here. <laughs> it's just kind of one of those movies where you look at the cast and you go, Oh yeah, well there, there's a reason why this, you know, was, was made at the time. And certainly I think Hillary Wolf was coming off of, uh, you know, having a very smaller role in, in, in home alone, and seeing if she could carry an entire movie here. And she's charming. And I, I, you know, even as a teenager, I was like, oh, I really like her. You know, I mean, there's, there's certain, you know, actors and actresses of this era who were teenagers that I kind of went, oh, they're cool. You know, and I certainly felt like uh, that about Fred Savage during the Wonder Years era or something. But um, it's nothing to write home about and certainly not, not one of her strongest movies by any stretch. But just the just the fact that all these people are sharing this same screen and you know kind of going on their own little road trip adventure trying to find um, you know th this runaway girl I don't know it's fine I, I I like it it's not something that I'd say everybody has to see or anything but did you ever see this Mariah because I I, I mean I'm guessing this is not I think it's one of those movies I feel like I saw as a child and yeah. I need to rewatch like I tend to not count movies if i can't if i like have maybe one photo of it in my head i probably saw it as a kid but if i can't remember even a whole scene then i don't count it as having watched so i'm this is on that like yeah technically i saw it on tv <laughs> right right it's <laughs> like one you put I in the background remember it as a movie no yeah so yeah it's i think it's one that was definitely on the cable rotations uh, sure. heavy in the early 90s yeah, that's yeah, probably how I, I saw it. Probably an encore film. I watched a lot of things on encore that I don't remember anymore. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see. My my friend Stephanie Crawford saw this growing up, and I think it's like a film that means a lot to her. I, I think I think it's probably best for kids. I think I think that's probably who it's aimed at. I, I feel I'm reminded of when when we talked about baby geniuses on the uh, Bob Clark <laughs> episode. How, like we're not really the audience for this, so it's like we can have an opinion on it, but it's like think it really is aimed at like preteens maybe um oh for sure i mean i i kind of share i kind of share your feeling that like it's just nice to see 
uh, you know, Griffin Dunn and Adrian Shelley and David Strathairn and like all these, you know, great faces. And, uh, you know, I, so I, I mean, you had kind of warned me that I wouldn't like it when we talked about this years ago. And I, I did, I did go into it with kind of lowered expectations and it's fine. It's very, you know, just silly broad ensemble comedy i i, I think um it, it already feels kind of dated for its time i mean i don't know why she had back-to-back films with the, the escape club on the soundtrack the one hit wonders behind wild wild west but she clearly had some oh, kind of connection yeah. to that record oh, um yeah. some but, of those needle drops Ooh, but, yeah yeah well i mean we didn't even talk about the all the brian wilson stuff in lover boy but like uh <laughs> right yeah i mean Music that is very much of its moment or even a little dated, I think, is something that kind of you could say a, a few of these films kind of kind of share is like uh, music that just stamps a date on the on when the film was made. But, I, you know, I, I think what was this new line? It's like the last big studio really she has because Fish in the Bathtub, I mean, barely sc- creeps out into theaters. But for the most part, she is pretty much a television director after this. Right. Um, which is, Which is what sh- you you yeah. see for a lot of the women who came to filmmaking in the eighties. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of them switch to to TV, like Susan Seidelman. You know, she directed the pilot of Sex in the City, and pretty much she has a few films from then on. But um, they're mostly either you know four walled or directed to home video. Um, yeah. But she's her television uh, output was huge and it happened to Alison Anders and happened to Penelope a little bit. And then Penelope was just like, I'm just leaving. I'm tired of it. Um, <laughs> Penelope, I think is one of my favorites in terms of just how vocal she is about what it was like to have the door open and then slammed on all these, this whole generation of women. Um, it's fast. It's fascinating. And Joe, Joe McClellan Silver, clearly one who just embraced well, if I'm, I, I love working. I'm just going to work in TV, and you know, I think that's, I think it's great that she, at least, even if she isn't able to reach the heights of her '80s output, at least got to express herself somewhat. Yeah, yeah, I think. <laughs> in these I think so. Films. I mean, it's, it, it's, well, it's. I mean, you look at her career, and it's like seven theatrical films over a 23-year time span. If you go from Hester Street in '75 to. Um, fish in the bathtub in 98 and then within that same period maybe a little bit after you have like six made for tv features so almost nearly as many i mean uh, in for television not counting the shorter films and uh like bernice you know and episodic television so i don't know i mean that happens to a lot of i mean i mean we talked about peter bogdanovich bogdanovich did a lot of movies for television i mean paul schrader has done movies for television i mean it, it happens to the new hollywood male directors too but I mean, Joan Micklin Silver really never climbs back out of it, um, other than just one film that it feels like a Hester Street in that it's like, you know, clearly made on a small budget and, you know, but unabashedly for what she wants to do. Like, it feels like a personal film that feels like very Jewish. It feels very family. It feels very like this is still the artist at work, you know, in that film. But like... uh, I mean, as a gun for hire and made for television, she's still dealing with strong female characters. She's still able to do something with, you know, messagey kind of lifetime movies and like very kind of absurd melodramas in some cases that she's still able to be a professional and a working director up until, you know, not that. I mean, I'm trying to think when the last one was now. It's it's like she, she there was there was years where she stopped directing. I think the last one was 2003. So she was 
not working for like a good 20 years, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about any of those cable films. Well, we don't yeah, have to. I, mean, I mean, there's I think... if anything stands out, certainly. I, I know you mentioned Fish in the Bathtub. I didn't get a chance to catch up with that. The only one I saw was... Uh, was Hunger Point, and again, it, it was a Lifetime movie, you know, <laughs> and it's yeah, it it is what it is, you know, and I, not that it was unwatchable, but I just uh, I don't know. Lifetime's it, definitely its own. Uh, yeah, at least I will say with Lifetime, I feel like those films are in terms of like the the cable output for women, the the top. Like Lifetime tends to be the top and then you have Hallmark and then you have Oxygen. Although sometimes, unless you're talking about Christmas, in which case Hallmark has the best Christmas movies than Lifetime, then Oxygen. Oxygen's at the bottom always. Um, I've watched a lot of the, the <laughs> films for women. Um, and Lifetime is fascinating because it gets a lot of... Um, black nowadays and i think lifetime has sort of nosedived a bit the hallmark has started to come up a little bit but in the 90s and early 2000s lifetime films really were like that is where you got the women's pictures and and mostly suffered from lack of budget not from lack of vision so i I am interested to see what i love that you mentioned that she's able to add some of her um her isms into her lifetime films, because I think in this era of lifetime from the ones I I've seen, and for all I know, maybe I've seen her films and I just didn't remember because I watched a lot of lifetime in the nineties, a lot of lifetime movies in the nineties that I'm kind of like, they're part of my, um, you know, film makeup, but I don't, I couldn't necessarily tell you what all the films are. Cause that was one of those things I just had on all the time. Um, wasn't um wasn't bastard out of carolina a lifetime movie because that yeah, one that was that, showtime oh okay that yeah showtime. That, wow yeah that one devastated me god uh, yeah showtime used to pick up films that were kind of edgy they picked up the adrian line lolita when nobody would touch it oh I mean, that's right so i remember bastard out of carolina because it was never recently so of course i saw it though like the night that it aired but yeah um i mean showtime and hbo and lifetime were her distributors you know for the latter half of her career i mean other than fish in a bathtub i mean i mean uh a private matter is um dealing with like the uh that couple in the 1960s that the woman had uh taken thalidomide as a uh, as a sedative and so when they were about to have a child they learned that the um the baby was very likely to be born with birth defects and so they sought an abortion and it became this whole big media furor um in sissy spacek and aiden quinn and I think even in 1992, that's probably a film that you wouldn't have a Hollywood studio getting behind because, I mean, that's like the Bush quail era. So it's not really a uh, a time when uh, that would be, I don't know, maybe it would be a mainstream film or not. I don't know. But I mean, it, it's 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 her tackling a feminist theme um, in a in a drama, which I don't know at that point in her theatrical career, she's doing these like much broader comedy. So it is kind of a step back to something with a little bit more teeth. You know, as far as like tackling something with like, you know, social substance to it, because it's right after Big Girls and Loverboy that she does that. And then In Presence of Mine Enemies is, is again, quite heavy. It's it's an adaptation of a Rod Serling teleplay that had been done, I think, for Playhouse 90. I forget which show. It had been done in the early 60s with, with Robert Redford, but this was like her take on it for Showtime. And 
again with like like you know if you're into like indie films of the 90s it has Alina Lowenson from the uh, Hal Hartley movies and Nadja and it has um Don McKellar from the uh Egoyan films in it but um but I don't know I mean that's that's a film that's dealing with uh Jews in Poland Nazi occupation and the brutality of the Nazis but also just um like everyone kind of congregating around this this rabbi who's just kind of this like he's just got tunnel vision like he's he's just like you know focusing on religion and like kind of turning a blind eye to like these atrocities that are happening around them so it's like the frustrations of the people around him uh as these you know people in his building are being carted off to the concentration camps and so it it's a little stagey doesn't quite work but it's not uninteresting that she's trying to tackle something that grim and again like you know her comfort in like doing period subject films on like a limited budget goes all the way back to hester street and and even the short films um invisible child is like a kind of a, a oddball lifetime movie about uh a, a nanny who's staying with this couple um and there's three children but one of them is only in the imagination of the, of the mother because she refuses to acknowledge that one of the children had died and so it's it's played straight it 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 it's kind of fascinating cuz it's so weird but it could be unintentionally funny as well um the i think the gem of her tv work is charms for the easy life um which is a film that she did for showtime with jenna rollins mimi rogers and susan may pratt um who's in a, a couple of her tv movies but that's about three generations of women in north carolina um set in like the late 30s early 40s like it's a world war ii era kind of film it's from um, a Kay gibbons novel which i yeah. own this novel but i haven't read it i've read it several Kay gibbons she's a really interesting writer um i did not know that joan nicholson silver did the film adaptation though that's amazing yeah it would have been the same period as like um Divine Secrets of Yaya Sisterhood and maybe a few years after Fried Green Tomatoes. So I don't know if that was what they were thinking, like maybe the audience would be, but it's yeah. that's that pretty right charming. For, that sounds right for Kate Gibbon. She all her her things are about like rebellious women and girls in the South, mostly in the turn in the like twenties through fifties. Like that's yeah. kind of the style. Yeah. And Jenna Rowlands plays kind of a strong-willed, uh, like almost proto-feminist kind of character. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny cause like rewatching Hester street where like, um, alternative medicine is kind of shown to be something like of a sham in the, in the, in the projects like here, mm. that's like the, the character does. and <laughs> It's like a heroic thing. Um, cause she's, she's kind of got her own, I mean, that's what that, that title is kind of, you know, not making a, not do is the charms for the easy life and just like her, her methods of like, uh, healing people in the way that like these, like, you know, uh, corrupt male doctors don't quite understand how to help people. And so it's, but it's also dealing with like, you know, just the relationships that all three of them get into and uh, just their dynamic. And I I think it's as a slice of life comedy with a little bit of pathos to it, like it's probably her strongest of the, of the late films. I think if the people are listening and looking to like dig through that cable period, it's like probably the best film of the later ones, but Hmm. fish in the bathtub, just to, just to mention that is, um, it's interesting because it's it's uh, Jerry Stiller and and Mira um, playing the couple, and so it it feels kind of sitcomish because you might know them. Like, I mean, I think a lot of people maybe know Jerry Stiller from Seinfeld as George's dad, or um, 
It's also got Doris Roberts from Hester Street, who I guess would also be a TV star at that point, because it's right after um, she became known for everybody. Uh, everyone know everybody loves Raymond. I think was around that time. It's like late '90s, but it's also got Mark Ruffalo right before he got famous. It's got Jane Adams right after things like Happiness. But it's it's like it feels like a sitcom at first because it's like about a loving but bickering old couple. But then the premise of it is like, what if one of them just had enough and walked out? It's like that same kind of theme as Chill Scenes of Winter, where it's like the overbearing man driving the woman away. And then um, so it's it's not it's it's a comedy drama. Like it's still mostly like, you know, if, if you know Jerry Stiller's kind of comic persona or Ann Mira also, like I mean, they they kind of play the character personas that you know them from, but uh I don't know, it, it still has the same kind of feeling as something like Crossing Delancey, as far as like it's about that carefully established milieu that the characters live in. And it just feels like drawn from life in the same kind of way as those films. So that's one that I don't know. It barely got a release. And I, I think Cohen distributes it now on Blu-ray. So um, it is something that you can get like a good copy of. I think it's also on Tubi if you don't have a $20 to buy to, and want to see it. Um, I think it's available on streaming with ads. But, I think uh, Charms for the Easy Life is also on Tubi, I just saw. So, okay. That's what yeah, I'm saying. I, Tubi is like I hate the commercials, but Tubi really is like you. You hear of a random movie and you think, "Oh, this won't be streaming anywhere," and then it's on Tubi. Amazing. Yeah. They have Claudia Wheels. Um, uh, it's my turn on there right now too. Mm-hmm. If anyone mm-hmm. wants to watch that, yeah, really good Jill Clayburgh film. Yeah, I think I think and I think almost every film i said just now is on either youtube or tubi or someplace i mean i i think there's there's no hard to find joe nicklin silver films if you spend even five minutes looking <laughs> yeah uh and and again just she was a trailblazer and you know and, and champion of other women directors and she certainly influenced generations of women to come without a doubt and uh, and, and it's, I, I had no idea, like all about her daughter that you, you interviewed, right, Mariah? Like I, I had, n- yeah. I'd known the name Marissa she, Silver, she, I, but yeah, I called her a film director and she said, I, d- I made, w- I made one movie. I was like, I, I think you made two movies. I didn't want to push her. She doesn't like being called a film director. <laughs> <laughs> She's made at least two movies because she made she permanent, made four, permanent ra- four. Okay. I've seen two of them. I'm pretty sure. But when I said she was a film director herself, she's like, no, (laughs) but you made, I've seen them. Yeah. She has old, right. She has old enough. Permanent record. Uh, Was it, he said, permanent record. There's one. And then there's one. There's one. He said, she said, he said, yeah. 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 That's Uh, the one I haven't seen. She's got another one with Diane Lane. I don't know if she directed. I don't think she directed. Yeah. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did she not direct that? I don't. Yeah. And, Okay, yeah, she, she directed did. those. Okay, yeah, she did. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah she yeah. actually co-directed a film that was part of that, that same series, Jim. That you had sent me. Was it seven? Was it seventeen? What was the movie? Yes, Middletown. Right. Yeah, she did one of the Middletown films called Community of Praise in '82, which I almost bought it because I haven't seen that one. You can rent it for. Oh. Uh, but I just I ran out of time before we got recording, and I thought, well, I mean, I don't need to see all of her daughter's features <laughs> for this conversation, but I did watch. Um, Wow, I'll have to see and, that. And, yeah, I'm curious yeah. about that actually because that yeah, middle time series. She said is the one I'm missing from the ones that. I guess that one's also co-directed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it is co-directed. Um, but that I remember when that was out, like in theaters as a kid. But I've I've never seen it. Um, 
Yeah, and the girl, one of the girls from um, Old Enough is in one of her uh, mother's films from that same period because it was a oh, film okay. that she did for television. Um, what is it called? The uh, How to Be a Perfect Person in Just Three Days, mm-hmm. which is kind of a return to that um, like like after school special kind of vibe of her early seventies work, and it has uh, Wallace Shawn post my dinner with Andre is the uh, is the guy that like teaches the little kid how to be a perfect person, but her but his best friend girl is the uh, is the is the is the main girl from uh, her daughter's film Old Enough. Oh wow! And then her other daughter, Joe McLean Silver's other daughter, is in Passing uh, Delancey. Passing Delancey as Cecilia Monk. Yeah. performance artist slash bookseller um also apparently marissa silver made what looks to be a neo-noir made for tv movie called the decency with a really cool poster oh interesting um, i didn't know that, that i clearly have to save for noir member it looks like it it, it should count i'm gonna make it count <laughs> no i'm i've i've sung the praises of permanent record many times i've it's such an amazing keanu performance oh my god Oh my God! There's a scene where he breaks down with his best friend's dad. That I just like I lose my mind. I just lose it so much. And like I, I was on a podcast where we did 1988, and my and my 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 dear friends Colin Suter and Eric Childress were like, I don't think Keanu is very good in Permanent Record. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, he's still. I know he's still got qualities of younger Keanu and like he's got moments where yeah you could see the little the Ted Theodore Logan qualities there in his performance but there's just he he explodes with like intensity and 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 drama within that role that just I don't know again I saw young and and movies about suicide and suicidal ideation are just yeah I mean mental health in general any movies about that that cover it, especially from that era, uh, just really um, speak to me or I know people who can relate to them. And yeah, that's one that's really special, even if it's uh, it's just, uh, yeah, I wish Marissa Silver had done more, yeah. but yeah. I'll it's to- a great movie. I, I saw it for the first time for this in Kiska. I knew you were a fan of it. And I thought maybe it'll mm. come up in this conversation. And uh, I, as someone that grew up with River's Edge in my own private Idaho, it's like the great like bridge film for the Keanu Reeves of like that kind of like disaffected like mm-hmm. w- upper n- upper north you know west kind of kind of period of his career I mean it's a, it's a Portland film right so yeah. it's uh yeah no I thought it was really good and, and uh yeah that's just, one just, that's one that we Warner Archive put out on even though it wasn't a Warner Brothers film I don't believe but they would license like for a while they were putting out other studios films um I'm not really sure what that legal deal was there, but that was one that we put out right at the end of me working there before I moved over to Rotten Tomatoes. And um, so that's how I saw it was through the Warner Archive uh, release. And I was really blown away by Keanu. And and even though he's not the lead, like that's how they market it now, you know, because he's the most famous person in it. But you can see how it's definitely, if you're a Keanu fan, you can see the like the roots of what he would become in this movie for sure. Yeah. And Lou Reed fans can get the most random cameo of all time. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you gotta love that. And so is that on Blu-ray or just DVD? I think it's just DVD. Just DVD yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause I never, I never picked that one up for some reason, but I should anyway. 
Uh, hey, and Claudia Silver, Claudia Silver, uh, Chichilla Monk oh, from uh, Crossing yeah. Delancey. I, 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 I was looking her up as preparing for this. I was like, she was married to Dean Wareham from Luna and Galaxy Five Hundred for a couple of years. Oh, weird! Wow, and that's one I of my found favorite so bands. Weird. Oh, wow! I know, just like that. Oh, it's funny. And, and and Marissa Silver's married to Ken Quapis, who did Follow That Bird, which is <laughs> you know, of course, a movie that I'm. That that's one of the first movies I saw in the theater with a double feature of E.T. And uh, that was wow. very memorable. Very, that was, I was seven years old and E.T. had traumatized me, but then Follow That Bird came on and I automatically felt better. Because I'm like, oh, Sesame Street characters are singing and dancing. This is so much fun. I feel so much better now. Uh, and then a lot of people from SCTV were in that movie. So, yeah, it's Follow That Bird's a special movie. Everybody should... Everybody just go watch Follow That Bird right now. No, I'm kidding. You don't have to. That's for kids. But anyway, <laughs> um, let's give our top three Joan Micklin Silver movies to end our conversation. Oh, oh wow. I know. It's not always easy. Um, for, for my number three, it's always it's a kind of tough call between Finnegan, Begin Again, and Between the Lines. But I'm going to go with Between the Lines for number three. Crossing Delancey for number two, and Chilly Scenes of Winter for number one. I will uh, go Finnegan Begin Again for number three, Between the Lines for number two, and Chilly Scenes of Winter for number one. I'm all on my own here. Um, I don't know if I can choose between Between the Lines and Chilly Scenes. They're so interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess I'll go with Between the Lines for number three, and then... Hester Street for number two and then Crossing Delancey because I gotta go I gotta go hard for Crossing Delancey. <laughs> yeah, as well you should. It's 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 one of the rare movies that I've seen as an adult that I have now seen almost as many times as I would have if I had seen it as a kid when I would watch movies, you know, obsessively. Yeah. Um one of the few that the ranks I don't actually you know, like on Letterboxd you can put how many times you've watched a movie. I don't need people to know. <laughs> how many times I rewatch certain movies? That is for me and my cat to know. That's but so <laughs> Crossing Delancey is really high on there. Like we had it on Filmstruck. I forgot to mention this. We had it on on uh, Dearly Beloved Filmstruck. One of the last themes that we added was Jewish contemporary Jewish life. Um, but it was only up for a month uh, before Warner Brothers at the time pulled the plug on us. And um. Crossing Delancey was on there, and for the last month that Filmstruck existed, I had Crossing Delancey on in my cubicle every day. <laughs> wow. So, you can imagine how many times I've watched that movie. Yeah, I'd have to think about some of the movies that I've watched many, 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 many times, and I'm sure the one that would definitely come up right off the top of my head is Pump Up the Volume. I've seen that many, 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 many times. That's a good movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a good movie. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm stoked to rewatch the chilly scenes. I've wa- I rewatched it when I got the um, Twilight Time one, but I am excited to revisit it again with this new Criterion release. Yeah, there's a good documentary on there um, for I think it's for German television about her career, and it's um, yeah, I mean, it even has um, some footage of uh, Keith Gordon, who's been on Directors Club rehearsing for that play. But um, they have interviews with people like Amy Robinson and. Carol Kane, you know, talking about the films. Um, I think I think they even have clips from On the Yard, which we didn't talk about, which is the film that she produced for her husband right between 
Between the Lines and Chilies of Winter, which John Hurt is one of the leads in that. And I think actually some of the the darkness of the uh of the character he plays in Chilly Sense of Winter. I mean, you feel a little bit in that film too. I mean, he's a, I mean, he's a convict in that one. So it's a little bit more obvious, but that same kind of mix of like charming, but also kind of menacing <laughs> that he does. I think, you know, that might've also influenced her choice for casting. Cause I don't think that the studio was like, Oh, you got to get John Hurd in that lead part. <laughs> yeah. And um, you mentioned the the documentary. I'm excited to watch it. It's by Katya Ragnali, I think is how you pronounce her last name. She mm-hmm. has a very interesting career in the 70s and 80s, basically documenting a lot of the women who were uh, making films. She has a Alice Guy Blachet film. She has one on um, Barbara Loden. She has one on Dorothy Arzner. She has one on Varda. She has one on Delphine Seyrig. Um, this Joan Micklin Silver one. I really love that. And Marta Mizraz, Miz, Miz I can't pronounce her last name, the Hungarian filmmaker uh, who did Diary for My Children. Uh, I love that Criterion has really tapped into her because she was one of those filmmakers where I'd seen all these docs that she'd made, like seen that they existed, but they were not usually all that easy to find mm-hmm. when I was reading about them. And, and Criterion has done the work to license them for almost all these releases um from these filmmakers and so not only do you get the films now you get this other female director who did the work of like preserving their legacy before anyone was really even thinking of doing that yeah i I was just gonna say since you mentioned barbara loden did um yeah it is on there the um the frontier experience since we just mentioned um her is is it one of the films that uh john micklin silver wrote um, that short film for Barbara and Barbara Loden directed it in 75. And that that's, I think one that people would want to check out if they haven't already seen it. I think it's also something you can find online, but I got like, like fairly like, um, like almost pro- Mariah, have you seen this one? Have you seen? No, this one? I have not seen this I got, one. I got like a proto Meeks cutoff kind of vibe Ooh, from it, but it's like, oh, hello. but it's, but yeah, I think, I think you both really like it, but that's, um, I don't know that Barbara Loden didn't, I, I didn't know that she did anything besides Wanda. So this was like yeah. something I I only saw like in recent years, but it is, it is one of the films that uh, John Micklin Silver wrote that I guess you could probably tie it to that um, Hester hmm. street, uh, like immigrant experience kind of stories. I mean, the um, it, it feels like closer to that early pre between the lines kind of phase of her writing. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's eerie and slow, but um, atmospheric in a way that I don't think her own films as a director are, but interesting film. And I guess because Criterion distribute it, you know, through Wanda, you can you can actually see it and find it. So uh, another another one to check out if you're doing the completest dive into Joan Micklin Silver. Yeah, and I think I think seven of Katya's films are on Criterion channel. I actually haven't gone through them all because I'm a fake fan of her work. No, I've watched little, I've seen scenes. It's one of those ones where I'm always like looking for a soundbite and then I haven't watched the whole thing. But if you want to spend seven hours learning about a bunch of wonderful filmmakers, seven of these documentaries, they're all about 40 minutes or so. A couple of them are really short, uh, under 10, but Good. The little tidbits I've seen, fantastic. So, I think you both should be film professors and just uh, I would <laughs> si- I would sit in on every class because uh, I'm I I always learn a lot. I always feel 
so grateful that um, you know that for, for for your memories, for your, for your knowledge, but also just like yeah, your enthusiasm just makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And certainly, Aww. I'm grateful yeah. for 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 Joan Micklin Silver's work and that we got to highlight it because you know she's she's not a Paul Thomas Anderson, right? <laughs> like what everybody knows and you know, like celebrates and everything. So this this to me is a you know a kind of an important conversation to have had. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping this will inspire other people to go check out her work because it's important and wonderful. And uh, if you want to see a great example of a great romantic comedy, look no further than Crossing Delancey. So um, that'll about wrap things up. Let's learn about what, you know, where we can find you both on the World Wide Web. Bill, we'll start with you. Where can people find you? Uh. <laughs> I, I, all the usual places, I guess. I don't know. I'm on Letterboxd. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, usually under supporting characters, although uh, that show has been kind of on hiatus uh, doing the Directors Club lately. But uh, yeah, no, you can find me in all the usual places. Hooray. Mariah, what about you? And I am also in all the usual places um, as old films flicker. And uh, a lot of my writing now is aggregated onto Substack um, as sort of sharing links on Twitter has sort of dive bombed mm-hmm. as of late. And then fa- Facebook also kind of suppresses links now, too, which is just like wild. So uh, Substack is the only place that isn't suppressing links currently. Um, so it's old film slicker there, too. The blog is called... Um, People Have Feelings too, which is a quote from one of my favorite other 80s movies called Modern Girls. Mm-hmm. Not directed by a woman, but also written by one, and the female characters are fascinating in it. But um, uh, every Friday I write a uh, column called uh, directed, what is it? Weekly direct, Directed by Women Viewing Guide, where I highlight seven films directed by women that you can watch immediately, whether it's in theaters or on VOD or streaming. Um, I try to dive through a lot of different streaming options. So, so there's always one Criterion one, because I always I just want Criterion to keep going. Um, so I always try to highlight them. But I also dig through like Tubi and um, Canopy and Hoopla and like all these places that maybe you haven't heard of. Canopy and Hoopla in particular are wonderful because you, uh, as long as you have a library card, you can check things out for free which is super fun um at hoopla in particular i like their in their interface so if you've never used hoopla through the library it's fantastic i couldn't agree more because i work for the library yay <laughs> i thought you would like that shout, shout out shout yes, out to libraries <laughs> of course our library is wonderful and you know our certainly come visit the main one downtown sometime because uh, we have quite the selection, and I've sh- you know you've seen pictures of the movie theater they have on the lower level, and it's just like it's epic. Yeah, I still haven't visited yet, and I really need to. It looks amazing. Yeah, well, it's kind of it's it, I don't know. I do th- I do feel like the the sadness of the, you know most people aren't coming out to library screenings because they can just stream at home and stay at home. And I'm just kind of like, but they're free. <laughs> you know, this is, Yeah. I'm surprised more people aren't coming or, you know, maybe we need to work better on marketing it or something, but still it's just, 
you know, and we do need to show some better titles and I'm kind of working on that, you know, come in, in the months to come in terms of programming and things like that. But I, I, I am just as grateful for this here podcast as I am to be working for the Chicago public library and as officially a librarian, cause I've mainly been a library assistant. So it's a big deal for me <laughs> because I, uh, yeah, it's amazing. I've I'm been, very proud and very happy for you. About thank you. That. Uh, thank you. All, all the librarians I know are some of the coolest people I've ever met. So, you know, not that you weren't cool before you were officially <laughs> a librarian, but you, you've joined the ranks of the cool librarians I know. So I do feel a little bit cooler now, just a little bit. But <laughs> um, before we, as you should. I just wanted to say real quick before, we're, as we wrap up, um, Daniel Kramer is the author of the upcoming book on Joan Micklin Silver, just so oh, I have I his name on the, uh, on the podcast. He, um, he does out, uh, commentary on the outtakes and original title sequence on that um, most, most recent Blu-ray from Hester Street. Um, I think he does commentary on trailers from Hell for Chilly Scenes of Winter. Oh, great. Um, so I don't know when his book is coming out, but follow him if you are interested in, in uh, checking out his book. I definitely on, will. Uh, I'm Joan, yeah. Yes. And please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you'll hear from me once in May for a birthday bonus episode. But uh, other than that, I'm going to take the month off and basically let Bill and Patrick run things for a while. I'm excited for those episodes coming up. So stay tuned. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Yes. When your heart